that's what gets me through the dark days these times, knowing that I can make a difference in someone else's life if I, if I apply myself to that. That's adventure athlete Luke Tybersky this week on the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you doing? What's going on? What's the news? It's Rich here, Rich Roll, your host of the Rich Roll Podcast. Thanks for tuning into the show. We're back at it with a second episode of the week, keeping the streak alive. What do we do here? Well, each week I sit down with some of the most compelling minds and personalities across all categories of positive culture change. We explore everything from health and wellness to fitness, professional sports, athletic performance, medicine, nutrition, the arts, spirituality, psychology, inspiration, and of course, excellence. And the purpose of these conversations is to leverage the insights provoked to simply help us live and be better, to help all of us unlock and unleash our collective best, most authentic selves. So Thank you for subscribing to the show on iTunes. Thank you for spreading the word on social media. Thank you for downloading our free mobile app. Hey, Android users, I hear you. I know there's a demand for an Android version of the app. I'm getting the emails. I'm well aware. Uh, We're looking into it. We're exploring it. So uh, a little patience, please, and I'll be getting back to you with updates on that soon. Also, thank you for always clicking through the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. It's a great free way to support the mission. It doesn't cost you a cent extra on your Amazon purchases. And you can make it easy by just bookmarking the link from the banner ad on my site to your browser. That way it's right up there at the top of your browser. You don't have to go to my site anymore. It makes it easy for all of us. Everybody wins. Thank you, guys. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. 
And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Hey, did I mention I got Luke Tybersky on the show today? So who is Luke? Well, Luke is an Aussie-born, UK-dwelling, ultra-endurance athlete, an adventure athlete, I think it's fair to say. And perhaps what's most interesting to me about Luke is that he's not a world champion. He's not a famous athlete. But nonetheless, he caught my interest because in many ways, he's just an incredibly normal guy, a guy who simply decided to challenge himself and his limits to do something extraordinary. In Luke's case, this began early. As a boy, as a young person, he realized very early on that he lacked the natural athletic talent of his peers. Yet nonetheless, he was able to find the wherewithal to achieve his dream of traveling the world to play professional soccer. Unfortunately, that career was cut significantly short by chronic and persistent injuries, followed by severe bouts with depression, a black hole that left him bedridden, and at times verging on hopelessness. And so to escape this prison, Luke was forced to find a new focus. He had to compel himself to get outside, to discover himself, and to begin exploring again. And despite the fact that uh, he'd never run more than 10 kilometers at any one time in his entire life, and with only six months to prepare, in 2012, Luke decided to take on the infamous Marathon de Saab, a 250-kilometer, six-stage, self-sufficient running race across the Sahara Desert in Morocco. It's a totally epic race. If you're not familiar with it, Google it. It's insane. Uh, and despite injuries and many, many setbacks, he managed to finish. 
And this really lit an internal flame inside of him. And since then, he's competed in a variety of adventure races, including the Mount Everest Ultra Marathon. And what I love about this guy is that his first ever triathlon was the double Ironman distance, double brutal extreme triathlon, right? So this is my kind of guy. And now Luke has a set sight on his own self-styled adventure. It's something that he calls the ultimate triathlon. It's a 2,000-kilometer swim bike run all the way from Morocco to Monaco in just 12 days. So again, what I like about this guy is that he isn't Superman. In many ways, he is you. He is me. He is an everyman. He's a very relatable guy with a modest amount of God-given talents that overcame some pretty relatable obstacles uh, to do some amazing things and continues to dream of possibilities outside his comfort zone. So it's easy to admire the feats of the truly touched. That's inspirational. But I really love sharing stories of people like this because they are aspirational. And there's a difference. There's a difference between inspirational and aspirational. And guys like Luke help all of us see that big dreams are indeed accessible. So this is a conversation uh, that talks about dealing with depression. It's about a holistic approach to emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being. It's about how endurance sports can actually be used as escapism, as a way of escaping your life, or alternatively, as therapy. It's a conversation about how to wrap your body, mind, and spirit around a huge challenge. And it's a conversation about bridging that elusive gap between inspiration and action. Okay? Okay. All right, so let's check this dude out. How long are you in L.A. for? I leave on Wednesday, so I'm about five days. Uh-huh. Yeah, six days. So you got in when? Friday night. Friday night? Yeah. Um, cool, man. You getting some good training in? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been great. It's uh, just been a bit different. The water in the ocean's still a bit cold. I, I jumped yeah. in there the other day <laughs> in my little speedos, my little budgie smugglers, as we call them in Oz. But uh, all the surfers would give me some weird looks. So. Down in Manhattan Beach? Yeah, I didn't stay in there for too long. Uh, it's normal to go in, in your speedo down there. But, I mean, people think that Southern California, oh, the water's warm all the time, and it's it's freaking cold. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it took me a while to warm it's up. It's got to be, it's probably like 61 Fahrenheit around now, something like that. I don't know. It was cold. Yeah. <laughs> hey, slide the mic up a little bit closer to you. You got to chew on it a little pull it closer to you um cool um and you went to uh malibu creek state park for a run today yeah that was awesome that was really good so i went out there and just basically jumped on the trailhead and got lost uh-huh. just kept running and got to the end of a few trails and turned around and ran back and did you get the vert because it starts going up yeah when no. you go back right yeah yeah I, I hit that and i was like i when i whenever i run in the mountains i always look where the trees are the top of the trees i'm like yeah, I still got a long way to go. I know this trail's going up there, and it was uh-huh. pretty cool because it was just like nice little switchbacks yeah, yeah. on a smaller scale to like the Alps or something like that. But and it then, pitches pretty good once you get up there. I mean, I don't know exactly where. There's tons of trails back there, but yeah, no, it's there was, steep. Yeah, there was a couple that were, were pretty steep. I'm not going to lie. I didn't run. I was walking uh-huh. and I was trekking. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you pass through the uh, the uh, MASH site where they have the oh, – yeah. Yeah, yeah, where they, that's where they filmed MASH, that TV show. Yeah, I know. That was crazy. Mm-hmm. Come around the corner and then he's like this, all these MASH stuff just sitting there in the middle of nowhere. Right. That's Hollywood, man. Oh, mate, living the dream here. That's cool. So you have some friends here that you're hanging out with? Yeah, yeah, just hanging out with some of the good friends. When I used to live in San Francisco – um, like six, eight years ago, eight years ago, I uh, met them up there, and now they live down in the, in the uh-huh. South Bay. So, so you've been down here before? 
Yeah, I've been down here before. Yeah, yeah. I used right. to play uh, soccer up in uh, in San Francisco, so we come down and play. You've lived uh, you've lived everywhere, man. You've bopped <laughs> around quite a bit. I've I've bounced around here and there. I've even though I've not lived in Australia for eleven years, I still got the accent. So I've been told, but yeah, that's uh, a, you, you don't want to lose that. No, no, hold that, on to that. That's part of me. That that bodes well for you wherever you go. Yeah, especially right? in this country as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool, man. So I want to get a grip on your story. Uh, why don't we just introduce people to um, you know what you got on tap in in October because it's pretty epic. Um, this is what you're preparing for right now, the ultimate triathlon, this, this challenge that you've concocted in your head that uh, you're going to be launching yourself into come fall. And uh, it's, quite, uh, it's quite the uh, extreme adventure, I would say. So break it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you getting tired thinking about it? Come on, man. Where's that Aussie uh, confidence? Oh, mate, it's, it's there. It's there. It's uh, my life is the ultimate triathlon right now, so I love it, you know, and it's been three years in the making, so it's it's like my little baby, so to speak. Uh-huh. But basically, it's 1,300 miles in 12 days from Morocco to Monaco. Mm-hmm. So I swim the Gibraltar Strait between Morocco and Spain, which is about 12 miles. Right, 20 kilometers. Yeah. But the tricky thing there is the currents. I mean, that's a shipping lane. Like, that's that's not like, you know, some kind of picturesque, you know, picturesque uh, open water <laughs> swim, you know? Like, there's got to be laws about that. Are they cool with you doing that? Do you have yeah. permits and stuff you got to sort out? Yeah, there's a company that does the crossings. So uh-huh. they, do, they have the boats and stuff like that. So I sign up with them. But in normal Luke style, as I've been told, I'm doing it the most difficult way because normally what they do is they swim from Spain to Morocco mm-hmm. and then that's that's the crossing. Currents are more favorable. Yeah, way. exactly, exactly. But I said, I don't want to do that because it's not, it's not going to help me. You know, right. I need to go up to Monaco. So at the end of the, the, end of the challenge, so I said, I want to go the other way. And they balked at it for a little bit, but I told them what I'm doing and helped me out with a bit of exposure and stuff like that. So they said, yeah, you can do it, but it's going to be mm-hmm. a lot more difficult. So so why is that? Is the, is the current going out towards the Atlantic? Like, how does it work? Why yeah. would it matter if it's going if it's going west to east? Because apparently later in the, in the day, it sort of spins out. So people do two ways, mm-hmm. but the only way they can go back is if they get down quick enough because later in the day, if the currents will take Excellent. them out. Right. Um, so, yeah, and just the way the water works through there, it's a lot more difficult. And then, as you said, you've got the, the shipping containers. You know, It's the mouth of the Mediterranean, and the amount of shipping tankers coming there is like hundreds every day, Right. plus the marine life, you know. Right, right, right. My mum says I'm not allowed to say the S the word. The marine life. <laughs> yeah. I'm not allowed to talk about sharks yeah, that's and stuff. Ni- that's one nice way of putting it. Yeah. Well, is, she- that, is that really a big problem there? No, no, no. But you're in the yeah. ocean, you know, like. Yeah. But my mum up till, like, she knew about three years ago, I told my family that this is what I'm thinking of doing. And up until like six months ago, she said to me, oh, so have you got the cage organized? I'm like, cage? What for? I'm like, what, what am I doing? And she's like, oh, for the swim, you're swimming in a cage, aren't you? I'm like, no, I'm swimming next to a boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no cage there. It's not like you're swimming around, you know, South Africa or something. No, no, no. It's like, it's a bit of a joke, but. Yeah. And what's the temp? Oh, uh, no, it'll be fine. Down in Morocco, be like, well, 15 Celsius. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit. Is that Fahrenheit? I don't know. But not Maybe bad. like uh, 
5560. Uh, it's still pretty chilly, so that's wetsuit. You're wearing yeah. a wetsuit. Yeah, yeah, I have a wetsuit on, and then it gets warmer as you get up to. There's a few. There'll be a few cold parts throughout, but it gets warmer as you get up to Spain. Right. So, so Africa to Europe in one swim. Yeah. So I get which there. Is epic in its own right. Yeah, that's a massive challenge anyway, because yeah. I've met, talked to a few people who have done it, and yeah, it sounds like it's going to be pretty epic. But then the same day. I get rid of this wetsuit, I get on the bike and I've got like 70 miles to ride that mm-hmm. same day. So one of the biggest challenges for me is getting a good tide and at a good time because I don't want to mm-hmm. leave too late on the first day because then i still got 70 miles to cycle and that could eat into my sleep, my recovery time later that day. But there's probably a specific period of time in the day when there's like a slack, t- like when it's in between going in and out, right? Where mm. it's ideal for crossing, but maybe that's not ideal for finishing your, your bike leg <laughs> no, before no, no. dark, right? No, exactly. So we've got to have fingers crossed that it works in our favor. But that's day one. Mm-hmm. And then we'll st- every day we'll stay at a designated stop. So then day one's finished and then the next four days i cycle the southeast coast of spain to the spanish french border mm-hmm. and that's in between 190 and 200 miles a day right so day two days two through three you're going about 690 kilometers on the bike yeah right sounds fun doesn't it it does actually I'm, I'm talking it, you're to the talking right to the guy. right guy you know what i mean like it doesn't sound crazy to me i'm like all right 20k that's an epic swim you can get up for that 70 miles on the bike you know, day one of Ultraman, it's 90 after mm. a 10K swim, so half the swim distance. So you're going to be swimming. I mean, it's going to take you like six hours at least. I'll tell you what, if it takes me six hours, you're doing I'll good. be <laughs> ecstatic. Yeah, I'll be ecstatic. Yeah, so yeah, I'm not a swimmer like you. It, well, it's going to depend on the currents big time and the chop. Yeah. yeah. Right? Uh, all right. So then you, you get through the third day and you put the bike behind you. And then basically you're running from day five through 11. You're running a double marathon every day. Uh, Basically. yeah, yeah. So it's like 50 miles every day mm-hmm. for seven days, nonstop. Going uh, along, you're kind of hugging the coast until you arrive in Monaco. Yeah. I thought, why not mm-hmm. just stick to the coastal roads as much as possible? Some awesome scenery that hopefully will get me through a few dark times mm-hmm. and yeah, it should be good. I think it's going to be good, man. I'm excited. I said to my friend a couple of years ago, he's a, an Ironman athlete and he, he's been to Europe a few times back in Oz, he lives and he's like, that's a great way to see that part of the world. Mm-hmm. He said, just don't fall off your bike. Yeah, I think, yeah, rubber side down, right? <laughs> I mean, I think that, that I'm more and more interested in, like, these self-styled adventures, you know, where it's, it's, not, it's not so much about racing. It doesn't matter, you know, you, you got to finish in a reasonable amount of time so that you're getting enough sleep. That becomes the big problem and making sure that your crew is locked in and dialed so that, you know, you don't lose time due to, you know, stupid stuff because stuff will happen, you know, trust me. 11 days, you know, it's not going to go according to plan. And it's like how how do you react in those situations to expeditiously, you know, get you back going where you need to be. Um, But it's cool, you know. So there's there's the daunting aspect of completing it, but you don't have that pressure of like, you know, you're watching the clock for, you know, what your splits are, or what your your watts are on the bike and stuff like that, right? So you can enjoy it, I guess, on some level a little bit more than than is possible when you're in a race context. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The only thing, as you said, is the rest. Like, it's not just like I'm going to go for a little pedal and just a little spin. I do have to right. work because I need to finish in a reasonable amount of time so I can get the rest mm-hmm. and then get up the next day and do it all over again because... After day one, so day two, 
to day 12 is I'm going to start at 6.30 in the morning every day. So then hopefully in 2017 I can offer the ultimate triathlon experience to other people and they can do it. And if they want to beat my time, whatever it is, or if they want to set a fast time, I want to try and replicate, make it replicable, mm-hmm. replicable so other people can do it as well. So mm-hmm. I'll be starting at 6.30. So if I'm just having a little jolly up laugh and I finish at 2 in the morning, I've got to get up and go again in four hours. It's right. not going to work. How is, uh, how is your crew looking? Do you have that locked in? Motley crew, because no. <laughs> that's that's the key, you know. Yeah, it it's is. A team, it's a team sport. It's a team effort. Like, if you can get it to the point where all you have to worry about is getting those miles done, and they take care of everything, um, then you're in good shape. But you know, when you have to sort of deal with stuff outside of swimming, cycling, and running, then it starts to get tricky. Yeah, it's. I've got plenty of friends and and family who have all put their hands up and want to uh-huh. get on the. On the bandwagon, and the they don't know what they're getting into, though. Right? There's, a, there's a couple. Of, I've, I've got a couple of good friends who have crewed for me before, and I know who are good and who are. Right. Yeah, next time, next time. It sounds good, like a nice drive down the, you know, the coast and all that kind of stuff. I, I think most people underestimate that they have to be on point like the whole time, and it's a huge job. Yeah, crewing's crewing's just as hard as actually doing any event like mm-hmm. you've crewed for bad water and a few other things as well and i've and i've crewed for different races uh, for different friends and it's hard because you've you got to be on the ball the whole time and then people come in they're in and out within a few minutes and then they're off again right. and you've got to reset and you've got to stay on point so yeah i've got i've got quite a few friends who i know and they know that they're going to come along and they've crewed for me for my first ever triathlon which is a double iron man in uh, in North Wales and the crew up there that I had were, were awesome. You know, mm-hmm. get me in and out. Do you need anything? No, okay, get out of here. Um, so and I've got a few other friends. I've got a running group on every Sunday called PRC. Mm-hmm. We go running, uh, yeah, in between twenty and thirty miles. And a couple of those guys who I in know in London, yeah, in London, yeah. Nice. So like anyone that. in London wants to join PRC, give me a shout. And well, you uh, should. Uh, do you know um, Timothy Sheaf? I listen. I listened to it on the on the flight coming over here. Yeah, you got to connect with that guy because he's getting super into ultra running. Sounds like it yeah. on the on the yeah. podcast. I think he's got a few mates in London that he that he does it with, but I'm sure he you know he'd like to tap into it. Yeah, PRC is so. all about go and run, come home to our place, and we cook up a bit feed, and that's it. Nice man. Yeah, I like it. So, how are you feeling? I'm good. I'm I'm excited about it all. It's just as you know, the training and the actual event is the fun part it's all the other stuff like the promotion mm-hmm. and the logistics and stuff which is a bit a bit boring but you got you got to do it yeah well that's what you're doing here right exactly that's why i'm here with you rich <laughs> i hope it's not too boring for you no 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 telling everyone about what's happening and and going from there well i want to get into the training and the nutrition and all of that but i'm really interested in kind of your story because you you have a really kind of unique uh, you know, past that's brought you into this world um, in in a in a kind of a turbocharged way. Like, you know, I love the fact that, like me, you're you're pretty much an all or nothing guy, and you you know you came from this soccer background, which I want to get into, and just kind of you know th- through some some kind of you know tribulations in your career as a soccer player, launched yourself into endurance sports without any background and just went straight for ultras, you know, with barely any prep or knowledge about what you were doing. And your first triathlon was a double Ironman, right? Like, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, so basically I, three years ago now, uh, three and a half years ago, I, I 
just retired from football, from soccer. Mm-hmm. I just battle of injuries for the previous three years. I had a space of uh, like 12 months where I had three surgeries, major back injuries with uh, injections and things like this with radioactive dye and all this other crazy stuff. And I was a pin cushion for, yeah, I know, all different types of um, steroids and stuff and whatever to try and heal my body. And, and it got to a point where I just decided I had enough. Like I tore my calf. And it was like a light switch, and I just went, nah, I'm done, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I was 28, and I had my whole, basically, life in front of me. I, and I was, went home, and I was icing my calf, and I'm thinking, what do I do now? You know, like, I was doing some personal training in London, training some clients and stuff, and that was fine. I had some really cool clients that I trained and good connection with and getting great results. But, yeah, I was a, myself, I was a soccer player, mm-hmm. and they knew that. And then... <laughs> some stupid reason I remember a conversation I had with a friend in Australia he's telling me about this this race the world's toughest you know foot race and it popped into my head as I'm icing my calf and playing on my laptop trying to you know get away from the decision making that I needed to do was what's next and it was the Marathon de Sams, which mm-hmm. is six marathons in seven days self-supported through the Sahara Desert mm-hmm. you, you need to carry everything on your back except for a tent and you get rationed water every day right so, one of the most epic ultra marathons around running on literally running on on sand dunes yeah. pretty much the whole time right? yeah and I saw it and it was in six months time and I went yeah alright did a bit more research for about two minutes and then called him up and went yeah, have you got any places left? Like, I knew nothing about ultras or endurance sports. I'd never ran more than, like, six miles in one go. It was a soccer player, out and out. And I had a few friends who were triathletes and whatever, but I just really cared about soccer and short, sharp sprints, and that was it. And so I called this, this lady up, and she's like, well, we've got a waiting list, but the waiting list has just sort of overflowed. And But if you pay a deposit now, you can get a spot. And I'm like, okay, sure, no worries. And so I paid my deposit, and that was it. And hung the phone up and went, holy crap, what am I doing in six months? <laughs> well, I like the fact that you're kind of depressed on the couch and, and nursing this calf injury and your instinct was to you know, sign up for something that's just so outside of the ballpark of anything you'd ever experienced. Yeah, it I was... I mean, that was your cure, you know, like your, your way of kind of mentally clawing your way out of, you know, a situation that probably, you know... I mean, look, I want to get into all the injuries and all that kind of stuff that you were struggling with, but at the kind of tail end of your soccer career, you know, you weren't such a happy guy. No, not at all. I I battled with depression for probably badly for about two years. And it was just because I was getting injured and then I'd get fit again and then I'd break down and I couldn't do this sport that I love to do. And it got to a point where I was injured so I couldn't train, had to rest. And, you know, unless I had face-to-face clients, I would just stay at home. Mm-hmm. And I had some housemates and stuff. And, you know, it, it makes me laugh. Well, yeah, it makes me laugh now. But I'd pretend to go out. So they think I'd go out to work and close the front door then go back into my room and just stay mm-hmm. in bed all day. And they'd be like, oh, how's, how was your day? Yeah, good, busy. I left early this morning. You might have heard me and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I kept it really in-house. No one knew about it. Uh, so... Which in hindsight was, you know, it was pretty crazy and it was pretty something big to deal with that back then. But I didn't know what to do. I had no idea. I'd never suffered anything like this before. And my life, I just felt like my, my professional career, I should say, not my life, was just going south fast. So mm-hmm. um, 
Yeah, just these injuries just kept coming back and kept coming back. Do you think that the the depression was driven by the injuries and your sort of you know career trajectory as a soccer player, or do you think it's deeper than that? Like, do you still deal with it, or did it dissipate when you kind of found this new passion? It dissipated for a, for a second because I was so busy and I had so much stuff going on. Like, you know, it was like training for a, uh, an ultra, and especially the first one. I I tested everything. I, I researched so much. So it was like I didn't have a chance to be flat or low. But no, it's still with me today. You know, I, mm-hmm. I still have low points. I'm a lot more open with it now. I've got a really good call friends unit around me in London around the world that I can talk to and and then that know the ins and outs of it all and I don't mind calling them up and say hey you know, I'm having a really bad day having mm-hmm. a flat day and and just chat even about anything but um but yes I'm a lot more open with it now and it is you know one of those things where I don't know if it ever goes away I'm not sure but I think you just sort of learn to deal with it mm-hmm. and when you have those low days like I like I have now occasionally they're few and far between I will like literally do the bare minimum because if I do that I found they go quicker so rather than like back when I was playing football it was felt like a week or two weeks where I couldn't even drag myself out Mm -hmm. of bed and I didn't want to eat or anything but now I may have a one or two day or even half a day where I'm just sort of like you know what, I'm just going to chill, I'm just going to relax, I'm not going to try and push myself, I'm not going to open the laptop, I'm just going to let it, let it pass by and I, feel, I find that that makes it a lot easier mm-hmm. and I can get through it. But you haven't gone the therapy route or the pharmaceutical route? Definitely not pharmaceutical, uh-huh. no, like I'm real food. That's like, anti-American. Yeah, I know, I know. We'll, <laughs> we'll get, I'm sure we'll get into my, uh, my nutrition later okay. with all the real food, but no, definitely not that. Uh, therapy, yeah, I've, I've done done some therapy and it's been helpful, uh, which is uh, which has been good to sort of talk to other people, and it's 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 crazy because as I've sort of become more open with it and speaking with some some of my closer friends, a couple of them have have, have suffered with a few other mental health issues as well. So we sort of form this, this sort of little group that that we have, and you know we talk individually to each other and having a bad day and whatever. So we sort of bounce around with that now. But mm-hmm. for me, yeah, I, I, I did therapy for a little while and it definitely did help, but I, I found it was it served its purpose and it was time to move on because I just sort of felt like I was going around in circles and once I did that full circles, like, okay, I, I need to get off and need to work on myself and find how I'm going to move forward as, as Luke. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it seems like you have this kind of uh, hyper ability to focus and go deep on something almost at the point of of OCD whether it's through you know researching nutrition or or depression or you know ultra endurance or or what have you I mean I think that that probably serves you well in in ultra endurance you know kind of having that mentality about your training and all of that but you know let's take it back to when you know you were you were a kid I mean from what I understand you know you were not uh initially uh you know, some kind of gifted athlete. You were much like me, you know, the last kid picked for, you know, kickball or whatever playground game game was going on. And, uh, you know, the future didn't look bright in terms of sports for you, right? And you grew up in a very sports-oriented family, right? Your parents were both athletes. Your sister was a star athlete. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, Sporty family, sporty town in country Australia. 
Where, with, what does that mean in country? Uh, so in the bush, uh-huh. you know. I grew up with a, a dairy farm around the corner and, and stuff like that. So right out in the country, about three and a half hours west of Sydney, mm. uh, a little, little town called Bathurst. I'll give that a shout out, you know. Yeah. All right, um, yeah. But, yeah, so really sporty family. And I all I played was, was soccer. I played a bit of cricket. But that was it, and all I wanted to ever do was play for Australia in, in soccer, and I worked at it, and you know, from 8, 9, 10, I was just an average kid kicking mm-hmm. a ball around, and then representative teams came about when we were 10, 11, 12, and all my mates were getting picked and stuff, and I literally always was the last one picked. Like, you know, people say all the time, but I very rarely played. I sat on the bench the whole time, but I didn't care because two things. I got to travel with my mates, would mm-hmm. go away on, on the weekends and on holidays for tournaments, and I'd get the tracksuit. So I was like, I've got yeah. this tracksuit, you know. <laughs> like, So that was that was a big thing for me. But, yeah, always the last one picked. And then that was just for the local representative team. And then all my friends were getting picked for, like, the regional team and things like that and the state teams. And I never even got a look in. And then I hit around... 14 I think it was and I just thought right I need to become better how to become better and I kept getting knocked back by all these coaches and all these teams by saying no I'll better luck next year you know what I mean and it was hard it was hardcore back then because they would put everyone in front of you and the Mm -hmm. coaches would read out all the names who get picked (laughs) And then that's like you, a public shaming. Yeah, if I call your name out, come and sit next to me. And you, he calls out all the names of the players. And then there's like four or three little misfits sitting there around next to me. Uh-huh. And he's like, okay, guys, better luck next year. See you later. And goes around with his team and starts talking about what they're going to uh-huh. do. So it's, it's, it was cutthroat, mm-hmm. you know. But I kept going up after every, every knockback. What can I do better? How do I make the team next year? And I'd say, okay, you need to work on this, you need to work on that. And I'd go away and work on it. And then I hit about 14. And I don't know how it started, but I started to research nutrition for myself, sports nutrition. I thought, well, that's an area that I can get better at. I still don't know how that came about. And then I started training by myself a lot more. And I'd get my dad to drop me to the gym in the mornings. And like I'd just be doing stuff in the studio, like little sprint sessions or on the exercise bike. And no, I wouldn't be lifting any weights, but just doing free weight stuff. And I'd do that two or three times in the morning at six o'clock and then I'd get dropped off at my grandmother's house have a shower have some breakfast and go to school and I'm like a 14 year old kid doing this off my own bat Mm -hmm. and my parents had to change some of the foods that they cooked as well because I said oh no I can't eat which is quite ironic now but I can't eat fat fat's bad I can't eat that oh can you make your mashed potatoes with without any Mm -hmm. butter for me what is the typical bush diet meat and three veg in country meat and three veg what does that mean? So portion of meat, normally where we were, lamb was quite big. So a couple of big lamb chops or a big steak or some sausages and things like that. And then three types of vegetables. And then there'd be always bread on the table. And probably four or five times a week, there'd be like a, a lump of pasta on the side of the plate or mm. rice or something like that. And That's pretty standard stuff. Yeah, yeah, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. Yeah, and the meat was great. It was from around the corner and the veggies, most of it was locally grown and stuff. So it was still good quality, but that was it. So, but I would start saying, no, I can't have any fat and I can't have too much of this, I can't have too much of that. And my parents, to be fair to them, they could have went, no, I'm not making two separate things because, you know, they both worked. It was a very busy, busy family. But they both saw that I was trying to make me better. I was trying to make a better athlete out of myself and trying to push myself forward. So they supported me with that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I always say to them, you know, thanks for the early days. And 
and it was up not until I was like 15 when my dad convinced me to go and train for this team that played in the Sydney competition. So I travelled three and a half hours every second weekend. All my friends were going and I'm sure a few of them were going to get picked and it was three age groups high. I was 15 it was like under 18s. And that's like, just go for fitness. It'd be great. Go and do some fitness and whatever. And I went, I got picked. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea how I got picked. And the coach just basically pulled me aside and he goes, you've got great potential. You keep working hard and, and you know, good, good things will come. And then my career sort of blossomed from then. That's great. I mean, really what I hear in that is that you were able to solve this equation of, of bridging the maybe innate talent gap by working harder right yeah and that's something i experienced as a swimmer you know i you know i was good but i was never going to be great and i knew that early on and i went the extra mile and was able to kind of you know i was never going to be a star and you know for me it it was always about very similar to you um like i just wanted to be part of the team you know like when i went to stanford to swim it was like i got to wear the sweatsuit you know and i wasn't scoring a lot of points but i got to like train with the best and be around them and be part of something that was bigger than me and i think really that's that's all i wanted you know what i mean that was more important than whatever my own personal sports goal was you know whatever my times were or, or what have you um but you know around 15 is when i figured out the same thing like oh if you work harder like that actually works. Yeah. You know, so you don't it's not going to make you Michael Jordan or Pele, but, no. but you know, it, it might just get you on the team. Yeah. And over the next like three years, I was getting phone calls from the same coaches who kept knocking me back year after year and saying, are you going to come and play for us at this tournament this year? Uh, and I'd be like, I'm going to come and try out for the team. And they'd be going, no, 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 don't worry. You don't need to try it. You're already on the team. Mm. And I was getting picked for this one team and having this one coach install the confidence that I have in me today. That's where it came from. I wasn't an overly confident kid. I wasn't really all that confident at all growing up. But once I got picked for this team out of the blue and this coach basically took him, took me under his wing and you know, said, you've got great potential. Don't worry about all these other teams. You potentially can play for the state." You know, that you're, you potentially can be that good. And my confidence just went through the roof. And yeah, some people today say it's a, a little bit too much. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's where it all started. And, yeah, I just put my head down from then and just worked hard. And, and you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I got to sort of uh, play at the highest level in Australia and then, um, yeah, achieved some really big goals. So was there, like, was there an opportunity to play on the Australian Olympic team? Or, like, how does it work? So basically growing up, you have an under-17 squad, which is called the Joeys. Mm-hmm. All of, the, uh, all of the, the Australian soccer team is named after some sort of, like, ruse because you've got the, the Joeys, the Ollie ruse, the Olympic ruse. It's so Australian. And then the soccer ruse. <laughs> but a lot of our sporting teams are named after some sort of animal from Australia. Mm-hmm. So... You've got the under-17s, so all the young kids who are, like, growing up and going to be stars, you know, they get picked for that for the, that team. And then you've, depending on what, when the cycle is compared to the Olympics, you'll get the under-23s, which is for the Olympic squad. Uh, I was always a year or two below the age group for the under-17, so I'd be competing with people a year above me or two years above me. And then for the Olympics, I, I, I missed the cycle. Right, right. But I, I, wasn't, I wasn't quite that good, you know, I... Mm-hmm. I was always at the national tournaments getting looked at for scouts, by scouts for these national teams, but I never got a call. And I was fine with that. And, you know, 
two years ago, I wasn't even making the local team, and now I'm playing for the States. So. Right, and then you, you become kind of this, you, well, you come to the States for college, right? Yeah. You kind of bounce around in the <laughs> heartland, right? You were at, you were at uh, University of Louisville for a while, and then you were in Oklahoma. That yeah. must have been an interesting transition. Oh, man. I, so <laughs> I, I knew nothing about college sports. I, I was at university in Australia doing exercise science, and basically someone said to me, when you go to America and play, they pay for all your school and they pay for everything and you go over there and, you know, girls love the accents and, you know, this and that, whatever. And I'm like, okay, where do I sign up? Mm-hmm. So basically I knew nothing and I talked to a guy who apparently knew something but he ended up throwing me in the middle of Kentucky somewhere. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I turn up and I'm like, yeah, right, where am I again? So, But it was cool. I lasted a season there and it just wasn't for me. The school... The school wasn't for me and the team just wasn't professional enough, to be honest, Mm -hmm. uh, and just not good enough. I was playing. There was one or two guys in the team that were half decent to sort of my standard and and the rest not quite there. Yeah, most of the good collegiate soccer programs are along the eastern seaboard, with the exception of a few California schools, I think. Yeah, so it was a a small NAIA school. Yeah, and uh, and then University of Louisville came knocking at the door and said, yeah, we want to come sign you up. That's good, sorted that out. And as I said, I knew nothing about college sports and I was there and school was started. I did pre-season with the team and then the NCAA red flagged me and said, no, hang on, you've played professionally. You've been paid before mm-hmm. in Australia. And the coaches are like, have you? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh. So they never asked you. You probably just didn't even know, right? I, I didn't. That was I, the thing. I didn't know. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then the, one of the craziest times of my life was school was starting. A school had already started. I had three semesters before I graduated with my degree. The season was in starting in five days, and I was without a school. I'd had a full ride, and that was gone. And I needed to find a school. Like no one's got a budget that's got a full ride for mm-hmm. an international student, which is more than uh, an American student but I caught up a few contacts that I've made throughout the states and I get this phone call from a coach in Oklahoma you know and said yeah I've heard about you my friend called me about you blah 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 blah. we'll offer you a a full ride and come out and play for us and I was like cool he said I'll see you tomorrow excuse me he said I'll see you tomorrow I said okay so I went literally off the phone went to a computer and googled where the hell Oklahoma was (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea. Uh-huh. So rocked up out there and the team was full of internationals, which was which was really cool and a really good program in the NAIA, um, good school. And uh, we were we were ranked nationally in you know, top two and three for the two seasons I played there. We got beat in the final four in one year, which I still think we were the best team in the country that year, you know, but maybe mm-hmm. biased. And, uh, yeah, so I graduated from there and then bounced around the States playing uh, in sort of some lower league stuff in Orlando and New Orleans and, and up in San Francisco as well. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of became this journeyman professional throughout Europe, right? You played in Belgium? Yeah, yeah. So then it was, you know, like I was never good enough to play in the top leagues throughout the world, but you don't need to make a career out of it just to be playing in the top, top mm-hmm. league. You, you can make normal money that I like to call it mm-hmm. playing in the lower leagues but yeah you, you sometimes can be a journeyman so I first went to the UK and bounced around there got a few short term deals and a few little games here and there and that didn't work out and then I got a call from a friend who was playing in Belgium he said we need a defender come out for a trial so jumped on a train from London went to Belgium and 
12 months later, the, my first season in, in Belgium was over. So, yeah, did that and then went back to the UK and then I had three years of injuries and that's where all the injuries started. So looking at the injuries, I mean, that started to really plague you. That was sort of your undo, undoing as a, as a professional athlete. I mean, looking back on that now, can you point to what was causing that or what you were doing that was leading you to get perpetually injured? That, you know, it seems like now you're training like a beast you're not having these problems anymore. So what shifted? It's a good I mean, question. it's a different kind of it's a di- training. Yeah. It's a completely different thing, obviously. But um, still, it's, you know, repetitive, you know, motion. I think part of it is I don't know. I have no idea. And I've got a great team of – a great medical team around me in London um, who I've seen over the years who have seen me through all the football injuries. And – None of them can say definite, oh, it was because of this, this and this. And there's no, it's not like a reoccurring injury. I was having injuries with my right foot and then, you know, I broke my collarbone and then had back injuries. So it wasn't, wasn't something that was always the same. So part of it, I just don't know. And mm-hmm. I'm okay with that right now. The other part of it was where I developed a more of a understanding of the holistic approach to, to life and to training and, and balance where I wasn't happy in in life and I just thought well everyone's not happy at times just you know where I came from you, you roll your sleeves up and get it done you know oh you're unhappy I say what you know you're alive you're breathing you've got food and you've got shelter you're fine but sometimes it plays on you and I had a up and down relationship at the time with uh, with my ex-girlfriend and 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 then just all the injuries it just and I wasn't really happy in London where I was what I was doing and I think and I know now that soft tissue wise is is really connected with my emotions mm. you know and I That's tell, so interesting yeah and I, and I see that and I know that now because <laughs> I tell this story to people when they sort of look at me really weird and I was like yeah well if you you know if you're stressed or you're unhappy you know be careful because you could get injured and they're like what are you talking about and I said well look I was fit I was training for an ultra marathon I had a fight with my girlfriend two days later I stepped off a bus tore my calf mm-hmm and I was out for eight weeks. And there was nothing else in life that was wrong except I had a fight with my girlfriend two weeks ago. And for me personally, soft tissue and uh, my emotions are quite connected. So I think part of it was, was that as well. I just wasn't happy in life with the depression and that was like my body you know, sort of gripping me and making me really tight inside. So when I'd go and try and do these ballistic exercises, sprinting and you change direction with football, it was breaking me down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that idea is a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people. But you know, you're talking to the right guy. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. open to that, and I think that you know, we don't we don't really you know take a bird's eye view of our life in a holistic sense enough. You know, and the interplay between our emotional state and our mental state and our spiritual state and our physical state and our sleep and our nutrition, all of these things rely upon each other and if they're out of balance then something has to give so if your emotional well-being is askew it's going to impact you somehow now the direct correlation between that and a taff a calf pull you know that's a that's a stretch for certain people but you know i can see the connection there you know if anything it's a it's sort of a you know a call to action or a reminder to to be more mindful of that interplay it's delicate. No, it is. It is. And that's, as I said, that's where I really sort of got into 
looking into holistic approaches to life, mindfulness, meditation, and different relaxation uh, techniques. Because, you know, bottom line, I was doing the same thing everyone else was doing, getting up every day, doing what I needed to do. There was nothing special about my life um, in regards to yeah, everyone else. But I just kept breaking down. I couldn't do what I what mm-hmm. I loved to do. And so I needed to find, as you know, in my whole little OCD world, I needed to find what was what was causing this. And then I had a few people around me that kept trying to push me sort of a holistic approach. And I was like, yeah, 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 like a lot of people in life. Yeah, that sounds good, but it's a bit airy-fairy. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, screw it, I'm going to have a look at it. And I threw myself into it and I was like, wow, I've got great results. You know, I started, So what kind of things were you exploring? I, I was uh, doing some sort of like meditation courses and things like that um, and then creating my own sort of relaxation techniques because we did growing up when I was uh, sort of playing elite sort of in my teens uh, football, we had different um, sort of yoga teachers come in and, and different people who would come in and teach us sort of meditation and relaxation techniques when we would go away to camps and stuff to do that. So I went back because we all thought that was just a joke, but I went back to try mm-hmm. that type of stuff and I looked into a few mindful courses and learned a little bit more about that. I didn't actually do any, but for me, just actually looking into it was, was right. a big step, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I, I did a bit of meditation and then just looked outside the, the mainstream box. So that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So meditate. Was there a specific type of meditation that you were exploring, or just no, no, re- in I, general. You know, me sitting still and just concentrating on my breath, or concentrating on one thought, or n- trying to not concentrate. That's yeah, that was pretty hard, like it is for most people. But actually, just doing it and stopping—that was where I was at. So it was almost like just making time for me to stop and trying to listen to my body and and listen to myself. You know when. When you when you shut everything down and you, and you have no external stimulus and you actually listen to your inside, so to speak, if you're when you're open to that, it actually speaks to you. And you can hear what what your body's trying to tell you, you know. And I find that really fascinating because I got some good results, and you know, I was I was listening and I was doing what sort of my body mm-hmm. body told me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. I like so in the in in terms of the timeline, was this happening after your calf injury when you're starting to get ready for Marathon de Sable, or was this during the soccer career? This was uh, this was sort of during the end of the soccer career. I was just starting to tap into it, you know, because the depression was getting pretty bad. Where mm-hmm. I wasn't even leaving the house, you know, my my parents live on the other side of the world, and we would normally Skype or chat every couple of weeks, and. I'd text them and say, oh, I look really busy, can't chat to you, and going months without talking to them, which, you know, they're my, they're my heroes, you know. My mm-hmm. parents, they're on the pedestal, and I, I couldn't even talk to them because I knew as soon as I said hello to my mum, she knew she would know something would be wrong, and she would sort of try and figure out for the first couple of, convers- uh, first couple of sentences, and then she'd leave it, but I knew that she'd always be thinking about it, so I didn't want to worry her. Mm-hmm. So I thought well, the best way to do that is not talk to her. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is not healthy. So I needed to try and do something about it. So that was towards the end of the career. Um, and I, I started to look into sort of that holistic approach. Right. Interesting. So you're on the couch. You got this calf injury. You, you know, you send your deposit in for Marathon to Saab. And then, you know, you know, so you got six months to get ready for this insanity. And, you know, how long was it before your calf healed and, and you set about preparing? And what did that preparation look, for, look like? It was, I think I had to have three or four weeks off. So basically I had five five weeks, uh, five months to prepare. My physio, who had seen me for several years, I, I rocked up and 
And I went, yeah, I'm done. He's like, oh, okay, I can see it in your face that it's a good decision and this and that. And he knew me really well. He still knows me really well. And I said, yeah, I've signed up to something. And he's like, oh, what? Because you, you're not signed up to, like, do an Ironman or something like that, have you? I'm like, no. <laughs> I've signed up to this. And he just went, oh, what are you doing? So basically I had – he got me fixed and we – like he has no endurance sports background. He was a, a physio for a, a premiership football club at the time and worked with a lot of elite athletes. But he said, let's devise a plan together. He knows my body better than myself and to a degree. And we devised a training plan and basically it was all about loading five times, four to five times a week to start with, just doing some runs. And, you know, I knew nothing about sports nutrition or anything like that. And I was like, yeah, I need to buy these gels. I went and bought out these gels. And I remember the first time I took one mid-run, I was going on like a – an eight mile run and I had one at halfway because I thought well I don't want to bonk I don't want to bonk so I had like a gel after four miles right and I, and I look back now I think you idiot but uh, yeah, yeah so that's w- common I mean y- you know out here on the trails I don't know what you saw this morning if you saw people out there but there's a lot of people that they just pack so much stuff for for maybe you know an hour hour yeah. and a half or something like that and you just don't need that stuff. You know, we've been brainwashed into thinking that you gotta you gotta bring tons of stuff with you if you're just gonna venture out into nature for a short period of time. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. We're gonna have a whole another podcast on real uh, food and my thoughts on that, but we'll talk about that later. So yeah, and I basically we worked together, Mo and I, my physio, and after a couple of weeks I said to him, I wanna finish in the top fifty. The elite top fifty in the marathon de Sabs is like a sort of a sort of a club type of thing you finish in the top 50 it's like amazing and and what they do is after the first three days there's a long day which is basically a double marathon on the fourth day and fifth day and the elite top 50 start three hours later so they finish closer to the rest of the group Mm -hmm. and although I went into I so I wanted to train to finish in the top 50 so it was not just become an ultra runner in five months to do 155 miles in a week it was finishing the top 50 and he saw the look in my eye and he's like I can't convince you out of this I'm like no I'm doing it so we trained for that we got up to I was running within two months like 100 miles a week wow that's a very short period of time to ramp up to that kind of volume yeah with I'm a, shocked you didn't get injured I did <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, literally I mean, especially with your history of injury like yeah. that's not a responsible ramp no not at all but I was doing it and that was it um, but I did, I did take an injury into the race. My ITB flared up just from the amount of load that I had. But you know, as you said, it's it's irresponsible and it's, and it's a stupid amount of loading in such a short time. But now looking back, the whole reason I signed up to the marathon de Sables is not that I wanted to be an endurance athlete or anything like that. It was I don't want to deal with life. Mm-hmm. I needed something to take my mind off what I'm going to do. I needed something to take my mind off that I've retired from the career that all I've ever wanted to do since I was four years old was play soccer. So that was just a massive sidestep. And I thought, well, if I do this, then this is going to give me six months to not worry about anything else. And I'm just going to focus on this. And if I say I'm going to finish in the top 50, well, then I need to train hard every day. I need to focus on all the preparation and testing of the kit. And then if I, and then if I do this, everyone else is not going to, ask me what am I going to do next because they know I'm going to be doing this so mm-hmm. it was all, I almost like tried to trick everyone and trick myself that 
oh, I'm, I'm going to deal with life once I finish this. So it was giving me another six months to prepare for that. And that was, in hindsight, looking back, that's the reason why I signed up the Marathon de Saabs. Yeah, let's camp out here for a little bit and park it because I think this is a really important um, topic and I think it's a common thing. You know, I've seen it um, in a lot of people and I think a lot of people are not, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're owning that, but I think there's a lot of people out there that, you know, are either not owning it or are <clears throat> unconscious of the extent to which they're using endurance sports to escape from some other aspect of their life. You know, you see it, whether it's an unhappy marriage or some kind of childhood trauma or a career they don't like. It's a very because it's so all consuming mm-hmm. and you can become so obsessed if you're, you know, if you're like you or you're like me. It's very easy to invest maybe too much of yourself in, in this goal and have your life kind of pivot around it to the exclusion of so many other important things in your life. Um, and then it can become like a very easy to, I don't know if denial is the right word, but to kind of dismiss other aspects of your life with this kind of focus. And, you know, I think it's okay in a short run context, but in terms of a lifestyle that has sustainable, you know, qualities to it, not so good, right? And, yeah. and, and I think it can perpetuate whatever I think, you know, disorder is not the right word. It's too severe. But, you know, maybe, you know, prevent you from some interpersonal growth by by putting a barrier between you and whatever issue it is that you kind of need to grapple with and get to the other side of. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's the whole endurance sports takes time to prepare for because you have to understand the sports that you're doing. You have to do the training and it's long. You know, you spend hours and hours every week. And if you have a nine-to-five, well, any time you have that is before or after work. So if you've got, as you said, an unhappy marriage or something else, then, yeah, it's a great way to say, look, I've, I've, I'm doing this. I've got to do it. I've got to get away. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I've seen it too. There's so many people that are just doing all these endurance sports to run away from something or, a lot of times, run away from themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're battling depression or something like that and the only time they feel alive is when they go out and run you know four or five hours I, I've been like that you know I, I battled with insomnia for a long time uh, due to a, a relationship breakup and that's what that's what started that and I had insomnia and and when I had my low days yeah I use endurance sports I use mm-hmm. running like I, I left my house in in West London and and ran to the middle of London running down Oxford Street at four o'clock on a Wednesday morning literally no one else there to, with all the you know the big shops and stuff like that running down the middle there and I'd, I'd do like 20 miles 25 miles between you know two and five in the morning come home and then start my work because mm-hmm. I just I couldn't sleep but you know instead of just sitting at home and doing whatever I was like I'm screwed I'm going for a run and yeah, to be fair, I mean, I think that endurance sports also provides the opportunity to help you answer those questions for yourself. And the, all that time alone gives you kind of that space and freedom to be with yourself, to wrestle with some of that stuff. I think it's in your relationship and approach to it. You know, and I've been in both places. You know, I, I, I look back on things that I've done and, and, and I can see, you know, the obsessive nature of it, but mm-hmm. I can also see how it's helped me. So it's not a, you know, it's... It's not one one thing or the other. You know what I mean? No, it's not. And it's you have to be able to take a look out and look in to yourself to see if it's being detrimental, if it's helping you. And it's a very fine line. 
It's a very fine line. And I found that in myself and also with, with other friends and, and clients who I train now. I train some ultra runners. And, yeah, some of my friends, I'm, I, you know, I've seen them. They're just like, you're doing too much. Why? Mm-hmm. I always ask why. What's going on in life? Not about training or races. You'll be fine. But what's going on in life? And with close friends, you can dig a little bit deeper and you normally find something. But it's a very fun line to, yeah, it's going to help you or it's going to hinder you. So it's really trying to take a look in from the outside to see what's going on. Right. I mean, when you're struggling with insomnia and you're going through this breakup, you know, maybe going out and going for a run at four o'clock in the morning is a great way to process it and get to the other side of that and, and deal with, you know, your pain in a, in a constructive way, as opposed to going out to the pub or taking Oxycontin or, <laughs> or, you know, whatever depression pharmaceutical that I'm sure some shrink would, you know, freely prescribe to you. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, at the same time, if you're, if you're relying on it or you're dependent upon, you know, that outlet, um, as a way of avoiding as opposed to embracing um, whatever it is you're going through, I think it becomes a different animal. Yeah, no, no, totally, totally. It's, um, yeah, and that's what it is. It is an animal and you've got to learn when to, uh, when to tame it and when to let it go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's can, well put. <laughs> which can be tough. All right, so marathon to sob. So you're, you're, you're gunning for top 50, so what happens? You go in with an IT band. Well, I had two Issue. cortisone injections before I went out there to make it last, which everyone, it was like an elephant in the room when I went to see my sports specialist and he's like, you know, I don't really want to do this. I'm like, yeah, I know, but I need to get through this. So he gave me two shots. Uh, you know, I was very stubborn and there was an elephant in the room that we all knew it wasn't going to work, but I wanted it anyway and went out on the first day, felt great for like 20 Ks of like 32 uh-huh. And I was like, actually, this is this is going to work. This is going to work. Then after 20Ks, it just went ping. And I hobbled for like the last 10 or 12Ks that day. I finished in like 20th position mm-hmm. for the day, but I knew my race was over because anyone that's had uh, an IT problem or heard about it, it's, it's an information injury basically. And so if you continue to run on it or continue to use it, it's just going to get worse and worse. And mm-hmm. I'd finished the first day. I was like 20th and all my tent mates were like, ah, oh, this is crazy, it's great, you know, we've got someone in our tent that's 20th and this and that. And I was like, look, my race is over. I'm done because I know it's going to get worse. The next day I went out, I finished like 30th, so I was still in the top 50, but I struggled through. My knee was getting worse. My feet got torn to pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people say, oh, did you not try your shoes out? I tried like five different shoes. I tried like 10 different pairs of socks and shorts and backpacks. Like I went full OCD on my kit, tried and tested everything, spent six weeks in Oz testing it all out in the, in the hot weather. So, And the kit for MDS is so specific. You know, for people that are listening that aren't familiar, I mean, you got to wear these crazy gaiters over your, your, your shoes and your, your ankles and calves to prevent the finely ground sand from getting in there and... and you know, this, everything down from that sock to, you know, every single item that's in your backpack because you got to carry everything. I mean, it's a whole thing. Yeah, you've got to make it light, as light as possible. But you've got mandatory kit and you've got food for the whole week. So they, they say you have to have 2,000, on average, 2,000 calories a day for seven days. Mm-hmm. So you've got, to have, you've got to show them before each day. They check everyone, 14,000 calories. Well, I went, well, I'm trying to finish in the top 50. I'm going to take the minimum, bare minimum. That's fine. So I literally took on average 2,200 
2,200 calories a day per average. And yeah, if I didn't need it, I didn't take it, you know, and you have to, you have to like try and minimize your weight because you're mm-hmm. carrying that all the time. So yeah, so I, I did that and finished the second day in like 30th or something and my feet got torn up just from the terrain. You know, I couldn't replicate right. that terrain because there's loads of dunes and my feet um, were sweating in the, you know, like the 110, 115, 20 degree heat and, and then my, my feet got blistered and everything like that and my toes just got torn to pieces and so that was getting worse. And then day three, I got up and I had a stomach virus because you're out in the middle of the desert and there's like <laughs> little little huts for people to go to the, to the toilet to do like a number two and everyone who was doing a number one would walk past the huts and every day after you get tired, the people who were just like going to the toilet to pee, they were getting closer and closer to literally it was like 20 metres outside right, your sorry. tent and guys are just peeing. <laughs> yeah. and, and no, but no one cared because you're like, I'm not complaining because when I need to go, I'm not walking any further than that. So I got a stomach um sort of like a virus, whatever, and I and I had the diarrhea and stuff, so that was dehydrating me and whatever. And after three days, I was still in the top 50, but I knew it was only going to get worse. And then uh, then the big day, the big day started. I was still in the top 50. I was like 40-something on the long day, and I started three hours later with all the, you know, the pros and everyone, and I'm sitting there in this tent. Like, literally, there's three tents in the middle of the desert with no one else around. There's, like, mm-hmm. 50 males and fifty and five females, uh, and they start together, and they're talking about different races and what have you done, what have that done, and they said, oh, have you done any other big races? I said, this is my first race. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I've never done an ultramarathon before. Oh, you must have you done plenty of marathons? No, I've never done a marathon before either. What about half marathons? No, I've never done one of them. Now, what are you doing here? I just thought I'd come along and give it a go. And you're still in the top 50? I'm like, apparently. Uh-huh. And they went, you're crazy. But um, that day was an experience. I did 84 Ks. I had an intravenous drip after the 20 because I was so dehydrated and I was like collapsing over and falling over. And they basically said to me, you have a drip or we pull you out. You don't, I didn't get a choice. Mm-hmm. So I was like, held my arm up to them. I was like, right slap it on let's do this so i laid in the desert for three hours with the intravenous drip getting pumped full of iv Mm -hmm. which was uh an experience and then i had to get up and run yeah and that i mean that aspect of it is really not about your it band or your knee that's probably experience yeah and that and that was that was because i got the virus the day before i was Mm totally dehydrated and you get ration water so i couldn't couldn't get enough into me but yeah that was just down to you know, numerous things, but my TB was still struggling and I was hobbling and walking a lot. And and then I still had like, you know, 65 Ks to go that day and I ended up finishing in, uh, it was like 16 hours and I got a three-hour time penalty because I got a drip, you know. They give you a drip mm-hmm. for survival, but they give you a time penalty at the same time. And then I was like 100 and something and I had two days to go, run a marathon and then six and then 10 miles. And then I finished and I uh, like 200th position or something. But right, I finished, right. I got the finishers medal and, and then came back to London and had to face up to life. Yeah. So w- let's get into that. But did it, did it, did it make you want to go back and, and go for top 50 again based on what you learned or did nah. you just feel like you did it? I got the finishers medal. Uh, there's too many scars. I've got love, not love, hate, but love, don't put yourself through that again relationship <laughs> with the NDS. <laughs> Thank you.
All right. So, you, so when you get back and you've kind of, you know, checked that box, do you have like an avalanche of depression that now comes on top of you because now you got to deal with your life and you don't have this excuse anymore? Of course. Yeah, so <laughs> I, what does I mean, that look like? Dark and lonely. To be honest, I I had a girlfriend, the same same girlfriend uh, that I had for 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 a while, and yeah, she was pretty concerned. But I wouldn't even let her in. You know, we were together for several years, and I was shutting her out, and um, couldn't run, couldn't do anything. Uh, so I took up, you know, I wanted to learn how to kayak. So I, I would go to kayaking lessons uh, with a, with a team, a couple of nights a week, and learning how to do all the Eskimo rolls, and yeah, you know, just threw myself in something else. But I did have to face up to life and what I was going to do, and you know, so I had to, I had to sit down with myself a fair few times and think about it, and. You know, there were a lot of days where I just couldn't because the depression would just grip me. And I, yeah, there, there was there was never any dark thoughts or anything like that. But I would find myself just going to work, finishing a couple of clients who I trained, and then just walking and without a purpose and just mm-hmm. not not think about anything, just being blank because it's like, well, I I don't feel anything, so I would just go. And, and I always come to like maybe 10, 20, 30 minutes after and be like, where am I? What am I doing here? Was there some kind of instinct to just sign up for another race? Because at least when you can throw yourself into that, it alleviates that pain. Or was there an awareness that that that, that wasn't going to solve it, that you actually had to kind of walk through it? There was an awareness that I couldn't just keep doing it. I did it once. I got a good six, seven months out of it. Look what it, you know, I had a great experience. I've got some lifelong friends who I still keep in contact with and still see on a regular basis. It was, it was amazing, amazing time out there, but also, you know, very tough. And I did learn a lot about myself, but I knew that I just couldn't keep doing that because life's too short. So I went, well, okay, what am I going to do, you know, with my life? I, you know, personal training's great, but for me, it's a feather in the cap. It's not the whole cap, you know. So I went, right, I'm going to be an adventurer. Mm-hmm. and started telling people, like, when they asked, so what are you going to do now? You're not playing soccer. And I said, I'm going to be an adventurer. Always met with laughter. And then, <laughs> what the hell is that? Yeah, what is that? I didn't know, but that's what I wanted to do. Indiana Jones. Yeah, like, you know, Bear grills and all that type of stuff. And so I, I researched into uh, loads of different avenues, TV and books and writing and, and what all these other adventures in the UK and in the US and around the world were doing and, and I thought, you need to find something unique. You need to find something different. And I was looking at things like the world's highest, the world's longest race. I thought, I'll stick with running because that's what I know. Maybe I'll buy a bike because I never owned a bike at that stage. And, yeah, I'll maybe do some cycling stuff. So I was riding down, researching all these crazy adventures and stuff. And I came with an idea that I wanted to do the world's highest, the world's hottest, the world's wettest races. And I thought, I'll put them into a nice little package and do them over sort of 18 months or two years or whatever and boom there you go there's a tv show look at me i'm famous mm-hmm. not that i want to be famous but look at me i've got a career i'm an adventurer boom that was easy yeah it sounds anyone can do that so then i found the world's highest race which was the mount everest ultra and it only been going for like two years i thought that's a, that's pretty cool go to nepal hang out do that do a race sweet so i signed up for that mm-hmm. but that was not Literally, it was 12 months after the MDS. So the whole adventurer thing was, was up and flying. That's what I'm going to do. People laughed at me all the time. Just went, you're an idiot. Grow up. You know, mm-hmm. even my mum went, 
yeah, we'll support you and that's what you want to do, then... Not I, a lot of job security. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I had, um, I, I did a podcast with a guy called Dan Butner, uh, who mm-hmm. wrote the Blue Zones books. And, and you know, he had a similar aspiration as a young person. Like, he, he had the opportunity to spend a little time working with George Plimpton, who's kind of a legendary mm-hmm. uh, writer and bon vivant and writer, like, personal hero of mine. The guy's, like, done everything, right? And he said that you know he would go to these crazy parties in Manhattan with all these fancy people that had tons of money but everybody just wanted to talk to George mm. because George had lived a life you know whether it's like Peter Beard or George Plimpton like these guys that just lived large through experience not because of wealth or privilege or anything like that but by taking risks and doing crazy stuff and going to amazing places and collecting stories and you know knowledge and experiences that they could share with other people and then write about or you know express in other ways and peter i don't know do you know who peter beard is an amazing artist who went to yeah. africa you know i mean you know there's something really cool and and extremely alluring about that you know for a young guy who you know is facing a choice of you know life in a cubicle or mm-hmm. you know, something else and in dan's case he did it. You know, he went and he went on these crazy cycling treks and rode his bike across Africa and Russia and did all these things and, yeah. and wrote about it and persisted and got a lot of no's, but ultimately, you know, became a National Geographic fellow and, you know, does now he's doing what he does today. But, but uh, you know, to sort of propose that you're going to live this adventuresome life is to expose yourself to, if not mockery, to at least a raised eyebrow. Oh, there was more than raised eyebrows, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. But I thought, well, why not? I was 28 at the time, had my whole life in front of me, so to speak, and I thought I'll give myself. What did I say back then? I give myself five years, and if it all falls to pieces, you know, I'll be in my early 30s, and I'll and I'll go and sit in a cubicle for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But I'll give it a go. You know, why not? So over the years, I thought right, I need to have a bit of a plan at the same time because I can't just go willy-nilly and, and see what happens. I need to have some sort of plan. So I thought... Dude, these are not cheap adventures. No, they're not. So I mean, MDS in and of itself, that's like... The price tag on that is huge. Yeah, that was my whole savings. <laughs> like, literally, like See, that's another thing. Yeah. Like, I, I had... Not loads, but I had a bit of savings and I was just like, okay, here's a deposit. Yeah, okay, boom. Let me just transfer some money. Okay, and here's the rest of it. Okay, oh, savings, zero. Right, cool, now I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. So I literally put everything into it. Uh, and then when I said, told everyone I'd come back, I'm going to be an adventurer, they were just like, what are you doing? And I said, well, okay, that's all cool. So I had this, this plan where 2013 I was going to develop content to be an adventurer. And I thought at the end of 2013 I want to be able to tell people that well, what do you do? And I say, I'm an adventurer. And they say, well, okay, what makes you that? And I want to be able to tell people that this is what I've done at the same time developing content and and also looking back now, developing my brand. So I did have some sort of plan. But where the ultimate triathlon we touched on earlier came from, I went bigger than that and went, right, I need to do something unique, massive, epic, never been done before to put me on the map. But I can't do it now. I need to plan in, in the future. So I said, three years, I'm, I'm going to do this. So then I looked at a world map, I kid you not, and just went, give me something. Come on, baby, give me something. 
And the route from Morocco to Monaco just sort of just came to me. Mm-hmm. I saw the strait and went, well, maybe I can swim that. I'm not a swimmer. I grew up swimming, you know, learned to swim when I was like four or five and never done any squads or anything like that. And you could swim probably 100 metres or so, but that was about it. And didn't even own a bike. But I saw this and I thought, yeah, I could swim that, cycle that, run that. And then spent six months researching if it was possible and I thought it was. And I said, right, in three years, I'm going to do Morocco to Monaco. And then that's where that started from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, gaining experience by doing these other races, like you went to you went to you went to Nepal. You spent a month there, yeah, yeah. And the the Everest Ultra Marathon. Which what does that look like? I mean, what does that entail? Like, there's a lot of downhill, right? Like, are you running around the base? Like, what? That's that's what it is. So the whole Nepal trip was to go and do the Everest Ultra, <laughs> but my brain went, "Hang on, there's another opportunity here." Why don't I talk to the race director and see if he knows any of the elite ultra marathon runners in Nepal and can I go and hang out and live with them in their, in their family homes and stuff like that you know, and learn from them and see what they do. And I said, look, ask me if I can bring my, my camera and I'll film some of the stuff as well and you know, maybe make a, look, a little um, documentary type thing, see what happens. And he went, yeah, cool, no worries. You're going to be here for 10 days, here for 10 days, there and there. And I was like, okay. Literally went out there and knew not what was really going to happen. And I had the most amazing time in my life, staying with uh, these families high up in the mountains where no foreigners had ever been before, no water, no electricity, you know, sleeping next to buffaloes, drinking freshly um, milked buffalo milk every morning and stuff, like eating with my hands off the floor with these guys, helping them farm their little crops around uh, their land. And... It was just an eye-opening experience that these people live every day for survival. That's it. They get up, they prepare food because they need to eat, and then they'll farm around the land or they'll sort their house out if there's a few things that need to, like little jobs around the house, and they sort their food out for the evening meal, and they sort that out, done, go to bed, get up, do it all over. Mm-hmm. The happiest people I've ever met. Are they all okay in the wake of the earthquake? Are you in touch with them? Yeah, I, I keep in contact with about seven Nepalese people that live out there. Unfortunately, two had their houses just mm. flattened. So we're throwing the hat around at the moment uh, through the, sort of the community of ultra runners and a few different Westerners who, who know some of the runners quite well to try and uh, to try and help out and get their houses rebuilt because they're in quite remote areas. And even still now, uh, one of them who's a phenomenal runner has got some podiums in Europe and won some races in Hong Kong and he's very close to me. He uh, he's had no aid, no nothing. So they've just been sleeping next to this rubble, and he's been sorting that out and trying to get food in from different villages around. So it's yeah, it's it's, it's hit me pretty hard because it's like anything when you see your friends or your family going through struggle, it, it hits it hits home pretty pretty close. Mm-hmm. What do you think you like if you could crystallize what you took away from that experience of immersing yourself in that culture that <clears throat> kind of informed your daily approach to life what would that look like what would that be to live it every day and that's what I try and and portray from what I'm trying to do to live life every day and enjoy it and embrace whatever comes your way because that's what they do you know Mm -hmm. their whole life's about survival but they're the happiest people I've ever met Mm. you know and they've got nothing they all they all they do is eat take care of the small possessions they have which is their house and animals that's it and we have everything and we're miserable. And we're still unhappy. Depressed. Yeah. 
What? There's I a have red to go light. Out and run ultra marathons to feel alive. I know. I know. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. But uh, some good runners too. Ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't think of Nepal as being a hop out of, you know, ultra runners. It's coming. It's is coming. Yeah. There's some quality. Is that, is, that, uh, is that sort of woven into the culture or how does that come to pass? No, on the whole, Nepalese are, and I, and I mean this with love because I love Nepalese people, they're lazy. They'll walk across the road even <laughs> if there's cars coming in front. They'll be like, stop, shh, I don't want to run. Mm-hmm. Um, no, there's basically... The Nepalese army is quite big, so guys will go into the army and they'll do their two hours of physical training every day and then some of them will run, you know, and that's what they'll do. Or the the running scene is slowly getting bigger out there or people just live in the mountains, so they're trekkers and they're guides and they're super fit and they can run up and down mountains because that's what they do to keep fit and they've never really done races, but, you mm-hmm. know, they go run up until... They can't breathe anymore and come back down at altitude, so to speak. But, uh, yeah, and then there's been a few people who have moved out there. There's been a few Nepalese guys who sort of tried to create races and stuff over the last sort of seven or eight years, really. And a few of them have, have popped up. And when I was out there, there was a few guys that were on the radar that had a few results in Hong Kong. So myself and a few other people um, have tried to help them get to Europe and get to other races and... A uh, couple went to Australia. One of them in Australia at the moment doing a big race, the North Face 100, this mm-hmm. weekend. And, you know, some of them have got some good results. And, you know, it's just the fact that they're still not sponsored. They've got no money. So it's all fundraising from word of mouth and stuff like that. But they're hard workers and they're hard people. Mm-hmm. So did you end up cutting some film together from that experience? Yeah, and I've got you, I've got loads of footage. Do do? Yeah, right. so I'm... Yeah, balancing a lot of plates, and and that's one that I've been trying to balance for a long time. I've got a couple of mates who are professional editors, um, and we're going to work on that to try and cut that down to anywhere between sort of ten and thirty minutes for, and try and throw it on the uh, adventure film festival scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I say by the start of next year, but I could say this time next year by the start of next year. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it'll it'll come and it'll be ready when it's ready. It's. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's there. I've got some really cool footage. And I, and I did go there with a script in mind. I didn't just go and wave the camera around. So I went in there to try and be as professional as I could with knowing absolutely nothing about filmmaking or anything like that. So, um, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And and so at some point uh, you decide it's time to buy a bike and sign up for a triathlon. <laughs> like you get back from Nepal and then what? Um, Where does the double Ironman race idea pop in? That's just the next adventure? That's the nah, next scary thing? No, nah, you, you're missing a few things. There. You're missing the, the best one. The reason why I bought, bought the bike, I thought, what's a cool adventure? I was like, well, I'm an Aussie living in London. I don't know how to surf. I'm going to learn to surf. And I was like, right, okay, where do you learn to surf in the UK? And there's sort of a famous surf beach down in the southwest called Newquay. I went, right, I'm going to surf down there okay, I'll catch the train down on the Saturday and I'll learn to surf on the Sunday and take my little camera and my little GoPro and do that, stick it on the board. And I'm, well, hang on, how far is it? It's like, oh, yeah, it's like 400 k's, which is like mm-hmm. 260 miles or whatever. I could cycle that. So then I bought a bike. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, basically... Fight. And you just climbed on it and rode down there or did you train? <laughs> like, no, I, tra- I yeah. spent uh, five months mm. uh, riding and just thrashed myself around and then I said right I'm going to do it on the summer solstice so the longest day of the year I thought that's a good idea you know it was end of June it's normally pretty good weather 
the weather leading up to that was was great, really nice and sunny and warm and uh, you know like 70 degrees, 75 degrees, perfect. You know, great for a long day in the saddle. Got my crew sorted. They were going to leave like three or four hours after I left. I left at four in the morning, and they were going to meet me along the way and stop and start and whatever. And I was just going to keep going and change some drink bottles and whatever. Woke up, it was pouring with rain, ah. wind, like gusts of you know, 25 miles an hour and it was rough and I woke up and I texted the crew and went, see you later. <laughs> and they went, really? <laughs> and I got on the bike, it was still dark, had the lights going, it was pouring, it was horrible and I just kept going and I just kept going and went down sort of one of the main roads basically all the way down, so the most direct route. Mm-hmm. And I was getting thrown around. Like, I bounced off several trucks. Um, my shoulder got got nipped by a few things. Never got knocked off, but just because I got thrown around. And just kept going and going and going. And eventually after... And I, I did all this with a surf school. Like, they knew I was coming mm-hmm. and they helped out pitch in for the trip. So we get down there after 18 hours non-stop cycling, wind and rain and battered. And I just... I, was, I wasn't a broken man. I just wasn't very happy. Mm-hmm. And I turned up and there was like 80, 80 people or so out the front of this pub and were staying in the hotel across from it. And then they said, here he is, here he is, singing and cheering. I didn't realise they were there for me. I had a bit oh. of a welcoming party and they were singing Queen's uh, bicycle song as I came on, like, oh, oh, yeah. my bicycle, bicycle. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was that was pretty awesome. And then the next day we uh, we got up and learnt to surf and I can surf. I got up on my first wave. It wasn't very pretty, but I still stood up on the board and there's a little, like, all of that was rolled into like four minutes and there's a little clip on my website when people go and see me cycling the wind and the rain and, and trying to... That just sounds miserable. It was horrible. R- riding in the rain is the worst. And wind. It was it was miserable. <laughs> and on a main road too. Uh, so. You didn't want to just go, well, why don't we just do it tomorrow? Yeah, come on. You know me well enough now today. That's not going to happen. It's like, right, All doing right. it. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> I got you, man. I um, like it. So, yeah, so that, that happened and then... Uh, I went out to support some Nepalese runners in Hong Kong at a race, a big race out there, and I thought, well, let's um, let's back on an adventure on, on the back of this going to Hong Kong stuff and found a little island off the south coast of, of Hong Kong called Hainan, province of China. And I thought, I'll go there for like three or four days and go and run through that. And, yeah, that's a cool little adventure, you know, with developing content for my brand in mind. And and then I went out there and... Uh, Got to, got to Hong Kong and stay in my cousin's house who lives out there and got delayed going to Hainan because a typhoon went through the Philippines mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years back mm-hmm. and that was on straight path up through Hainan and that wiped out that island as well. Not as bad as the Philippines but, but pretty bad. And So my whole trip basically went from like five days to like three days and I got up there and I was just devastated but I still wanted to go up in the middle of the mountains and I was going to do some running through the mountains, sleep in a hammock and and all that stuff and take my little GoPro and do that. And But basically it turned around to my card didn't work, I had no money, I had no cash, I had no food, I had nothing, nowhere to go and I was 90 kilometres from the airport and basically I had like two days to get back to the airport and it's the most real adventure I've ever done because this girl from the hotel who I was trying to get a room at and like wouldn't work, she, she took me around to the banks like can I get some money out? No banks. No one spoke English. She was communicating with an iPhone app. Mm-hmm. Like in, she was like Mandarin or whatever she was speaking and, and typing it in and punching out in English. And it was, it was a crazy time. 
And then she ended up paying for a cheap hotel across the road from the bus station for me for the night and just waved wow. and, and that was it. And I stayed there that night and then I got the next day and had basically two days to get back to the airport, 90 k's. And I, and I ran, ran back and slept in a hammock in the forest through the night. And basically I was dehydrated, had no food, had no water, no nothing. And <laughs> the compassion shown by these people on the islands was amazing. They'd just been through this horrendous um, episode in their lives of this typhoon coming through. But here's this Westerner looking, you know, worse for wear, just dragging himself along the road. And they're calling me over and giving me, like, coconuts to drink. And I found a few coconuts on the side of the road that were being discarded from... Um, drivers driving past and so I got them and cracked them open and called them roadkill coconuts and like scooping out the flesh mm. and eating that mm. and the people were just amazing and I got to uh, about 10 kilometres from the airport the next day after sleeping in the hammock and it poured down with rain during the night which was pretty mental and I um, got picked up by this guy like in this brand new MX uh, X5 Beamer and chucked me in the car and took me to a youth hostel who spoke a bit of English and they got me back to the airport and wow. th that was my little Chinese adventure. Yeah, that's the ultimate, right? To just be plopped into a completely foreign land and have a credit card that doesn't work and you're completely <laughs> beholden to the kindness of strangers to survive. Yeah, that was that was it. And I did survive because of because of them. Mm -hmm. And that was that was amazing and the compassion shown by you know, these people, the human race, really. And I took away from that, you know, a lot of things that we spoke about earlier with Nepal, but from my China experience, I had a renewed faith in the human race that, you know, we are here for one another, regardless of what we see on everyday life. Like, you, you go out on the street here and you drive and someone cuts you off or you cut someone off and they go mental on the horn and whatever. But coming back from China, I had this this renewed faith that, you know, we are all here together and we are here to help each other out, regardless of our race, our language we speak or, you know, our socioeconomic status. And that's what I got out of going to China. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So then, yeah, and then that happened and then the next year was like, right, the ultimate triathlon's coming in 18 months, so I should do a triathlon. Right. <clears throat> I mean, had you been cycling after your sort of surf trip or... or so you're getting used to riding a bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I trained like a triathlete. I'd just never done one. Right. Uh, I signed up to a squad and straight away got thrown into like lane eight, the slow, the slow lane. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I was just fighting the water and going backwards, you know, before going forwards. But I slowly worked on my technique because I didn't have any sort of technique. And, and I got slowly quicker and, and whatever. And I was just enjoying it because I was changing up the training. Uh, rather than just doing running, although running. I love love running, but it was just cool, just doing something different, mm -hmm. something that I'd, I'd never done before, and and also just learning a lot as different sports and different ways of training. Because you know I'm, I was still training people in the gym, and I was training other runners and things like that. So I was learning about different training techniques, doing loads of research, talking to people who were cyclists, who were Ironman triathletes. So yeah, that was it was a lot of fun. So I was still doing lots of research uh, as I always 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 do. And uh, evolving with my food as well, my nutrition. But uh, and then I signed up to the double brutal extreme triathlon, which yeah. So what is that? I mean, what is the mental tick that compels you to just go straight to the double Ironman as opposed to I'll do a half, I'll do an I'll do an Olympic, I'll do a half, I'll do an Ironman, and then I'll 
go to the double. Well, so what do you know? How do you defend that? I'm interested for my own personal. Well, reasons. I was going out doing 120 mile cycles on the weekends, 130 miles, like at like long, a long ride would be 120, 130 miles. Mm-hmm. Running, you know, I was doing ultra marathons. I'd, I'd go out just for fun and run a marathon on a Sunday type of thing. Right. So it doesn't seem like that big of a crazy thing. So to, for me to do a, an Ironman, and I was just going, you know, doing swimming on a regular basis. So I said, oh, are you going to do an Ironman next? And I was like, I have no aspirations to go to Kona. So I don't need to go and try and train fast and go really fast. I thought that doesn't interest me. Uh, although I'd love to go out there when it's on, but to actually try and compete and to qualify didn't interest me. I thought, well, I could go out tomorrow and do the equivalent of an Ironman in distance and you know, in whatever time I do it. Do I need to do a race? I was like, I'm not really fussed about doing a race. So I was like, well, why? I need a, I need a big challenge that will challenge me both physically but also mentally. And I thought, well, if I go out there and do a 12-hour Ironman, that's 12 hours mentally, I can't really see that challenging me because I'm not going to be on the rev line. I'm not going to be trying to go 100 mile an hour. That's mm-hmm. a different story. But for me, just to get around in 12, 13 hours or you know, whatever it would take me, it's not going to challenge me in any way. So I was like, right, I need a big swim, bike, run challenge. So I started Googling world's toughest triathlons mm-hmm. and... Like, I didn't make this up. The actual name of the race is the Double Brutal Extreme Triathlon and mm-hmm. signed up to that. Because the name sounded so alluring. That's cool. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, to- I told my mum and she just said, stop. Okay, so what's the race called? And I'm like, that's what it's called. She says, Luke, stop lying to me. You're making up things now. What's it called? And I said, mum, look, Google this. I'll show you. But uh, So, yeah, it's in North Wales in Mount uh, uh, the Snow- Snowdonia area, which is the highest mountain in Wales. It's very hilly. Uh, we did uh, 15,000 feet climbing on the bike. Mm, wow, that's a lot. And 9,500,000 feet on the run. So it was a lake swim, mm-hmm. about, f- uh, I think it was like 55 degrees. And you basically do just everything back to back. So you do the 4.8 miles in the in the lake, you get off that, you jump on the bike, and it was, I think it was like a 30-mile loop. And you do that eight times or whatever it was. And you get off the bike and you've got to run to the top of Mount Snowden, which is like three, just over 3,000 mm-hmm. feet. So off the bike, you're going straight up uh, and uh, come back down. And then you do a lap, eight laps of this, uh, of this lake course. So there's no, it's not like Ultraman where it's stages. Like you just no. go straight through. Straight through. Right. It took me 35 hours and I didn't sleep. I had a f- literally five-minute break. That was it. In about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, I was probably about 25, 30 miles from the end, I think, and my support crew car that was driving behind me with just one of my mates, uh, his nickname's Dad because he's an old man, so to speak, but um, he was driving along and behind me and I was sort of falling asleep on the bike because it was in the middle of the night and veering off to the side of the road and I'd come to and he pulled up beside me and he's like... Uh, Hey, Luke, I think we should have a rest. And I'm like, no, 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 keep going, keep going. And then sort of two seconds later, I closed my eyes and veered off the side of the road. And I'm like, yeah, 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 rest. So we pulled over and literally I said, set your alarm on your watch for five minutes. We turned the heaters up. We, turned, we had loads of food and we turned the, the music on to, uh, I think it had U2 or something playing. So I said, right, five minutes. And I was there, I was like eating and had this hot air blowing in my face. And then his timer went off and I was like, right, let's go, let's finish this. And that's the only rest I had. It was 35 hours wow. nonstop. Mm-hmm. And when you finished that, what was the emotional 
takeaway? It was a team effort. I had three three people come up with me. So uh, Graham, uh, Tash, and uh, and Hannah, who are all good friends of mine, and they all have their own sort of endurance sports background and this and that, whatever. And um, it was it was a fun time. It sounds brutal, but because they were always there, and although it was quite boring that it was eight laps, but it was I saw them mm-hmm. pretty much most of the time. So it was it was fun for me. You know, I'd come in and see them, and I'd have carry on and have a laugh and have a joke and and then we head out again but I finished that and I went right okay let's get this Morocco to Monaco thing going because mm-hmm. although it's completely different but that was my first triathlon and a swim and a bike and a run and anyway, okay I'm, I'm ready for this now let's let's get this going let's get it going so what is the what is the planning like I mean you've got to get like visas and all kinds of you know, permissions, right, to cross international boundaries, and how does that work? Well, for Morocco, um, I'm all right to go from Morocco to Spain because it's all part of the the package that they do with the with the boat crew, and I don't need um, I don't need to have a, a visa or anything like that for mm-hmm. Morocco. And then through Spain and and France, I don't need a visa because I've also got a Polish passport, so I can I've got free reign through Europe. Ah, oh, you're Polish. Yeah, that's Tiberski. The, that's the last name. That know? explains a lot. Yeah, it does. They make them hard there. Yeah, yeah. I, I get my craziness from my dad. He's pretty. He's pretty tough and crazy, and that's the Polish side. Yeah, so. that Eastern European blood. Yeah, they love the endurance sports, and they just love punishment. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's funny. My, uh, you know, my book Finding Ultra. It hasn't been uh, translated into Spanish or French or, but. The first international like foreign translations were Slovenia and Poland. Yeah, I remember I saw yeah. I, when, I, when I heard Poland, I, yeah. I'd, I'd laugh my head off. I thought, That's fantastic. Yeah, it's funny they're into it. You know, yeah, it's something about it's something about the culture. Yeah, it is. As I said, roll the sleeves up, get it done. Mm-hmm. This sounds good. Um, but yeah, so visas and stuff. That's that's fine. That's cool. But yeah, it's it's all the planning. I've set it in twelve days. It's set in stone now. That's what's happening, and yeah. So now it's just sorting out some funding. Mm-hmm. I do need some funding for it, and I am on the lookout for that. Um, How much do you have to raise? Well, it's just I think it's been flipped on its head a little bit because it's, we're doing it in a unique way. We're going to film it and stream it live throughout different times of the day. Um, which has never been done before mm-hmm. in any sort of event. So it's a unique event. It's going to be broadcast throughout the whole world, but then we're going to have anywhere between six and 12 live broadcasts from the road, from the pit crew's car, uh, where I'm going that day and things like that. And that's obviously costing quite a lot of money, but through further research and talking and learning, so much you know from this adventure we're, we're, we're finding a way that it's we're going to do it a little bit cheaper with, mm-hmm. with the same result mm-hmm. so um yeah we're, we're still we still need to raise uh, a fair bit of money because you know we, we're traveling all that way uh, 1300 100 miles we're going to have a crew the crew's basically i've got my bare minimum crew that i want but if we raise a bit more i could maybe get one or two more guys to come in but we're not doing it anything fancy it's basically just guys coming along mm-hmm. i got a filmmaker who contacted me who wanted to come along for the ride and film me throughout this year and throughout the 12 days so yeah we're gonna have a professional filmmaker filming that along the way with all the content that we've been filming yeah, out you got it. 
Yeah, yeah, doing the whole story. And, and also I'm working with a big university in London, who Roehampton University, who had tested me throughout the year, doing um, swim, bike and run tests every two months to making sure that I'm not overtraining, that I'm not undertraining, giving me some levels so I can work on sort of like basically my lactate threshold. And, mm-hmm. and then they throw me and make me do a VO2 max on the treadmill and stuff, which, uh-huh. which they love because they know I'll just flog myself to death and... <laughs> Uh, the footage is amazing because I'm literally just going flat out and there is one where I just fall flat and my arms are holding me up off the treadmill and I looked at each other and started laughing while the treadmill is still spinning oh. around. <laughs> but uh, So there's lots of elements to it and because it's going to be streamed through the internet, it's, you know, it's a global audience as right, well. Right, right, right. I would think the streaming thing is tricky, uh, but with Periscope and Meerkat and like these new apps that are coming out, there's ways of doing it, you know, on a consumer level. I mean, certainly not like super pro, but to be able to use your iPhone to mm. stream and broadcast something live that should, should be helpful. Yeah, that's like a plan C. I've looked into right. that and uh, I've tried to get in touch with both the Meerkat and the Periscope people, but I've not heard anything back. But mm-hmm. there are a few other platforms that we can... Um, broadcast it through, which is a lot cheaper than going through a professional streaming company, and uh, and there are some also some satellite um, providers and stuff that I'm talking to at the moment who are quite interested and are going to help me out with a bit of a deal with not just the satellites but also the like the bandwidth or whatever mm-hmm. you call it for the data. And do you have other sponsors that are on board? Yeah, I've got I've got one. I've got a couple actually. One of them's uh, which. You'd be interested in Casagra Athletic. They're a plant-based, sustainable uh, clothing T-shirt. Um, what are they branch. called? Casagra Athletic. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's um, they're pioneers. It's fantastic. This stuff's amazing. It's uh, they've got this this formula that they make their shirts, and it's all sustainable, plant-based. The difference being, you can put it next to like a polyester shirt, and you won't know the difference. It performs like a technical running shirt. And their main shirt is basically the greenest T-shirt on the, on the planet. And they've been going for like three years to develop these products. And one of the, the owners I cycled with a lot last year. And so our rides, our long Saturday rides is like business meetings. So I feel part of the hmm. company because I helped developing. What's the website? Kusaga, K-U-S-A-G-A. Kusaga. Athletic. So they're not quite into production at the moment, but mm-hmm. I've worn some of their kits and their base layers and their cycling jerseys and their running shirts, and it's it's pretty phenomenal. And uh, I will I will have to say one story though. The uh, Graham, one of the owners, his uh, his wife uh, was at home one day, and we went out for a seven hour hot and sweaty cycle, and he had a normal cycling jersey. And he took that off and threw it at his wife and hit her in the face and it was all sweaty and dirty and whatever. And, you know, there was a divorce on the table after that one. <laughs> but then he had a base layer on, some of his Kasaga kit, and he took his base layer off after seven hours of hot, sweaty cycling, threw the base layer at his wife and she grabbed it and she went, oh, didn't you wear this? It was dry, didn't smell, no mm. odour. And he told me the other day that he's still been wearing that same base layer 12 months later and it's still, still, still good. Um, so what they're trying to do is basically minimise their carbon footprint with making these shirts, uh, cycling jerseys and base layers. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm looking at the website. It's um, It looks really cool. They don't have pictures of the product yet, but they, they tell the whole story of sustainability here, which is interesting. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's the future, man. I've got a friend 
out here, uh, my friend Juan, who uh, has a uh, a clothing line called Industry for All Nations. Okay. And it's not it's not cycling gear. It's not athletic gear. It's just casual wear, but. Um, everything's sourced sustainably. They don't use any artificial dyes, and they support, like, these indigenous communities in India and various sort of, you know, third-world places throughout throughout the world where they can actually, you know, support villages through what they're doing. And, and the way that they tell their story through social media and Instagram and videos, et cetera, like that, like the, the level of transparency is just really cool. And I think that that's where business needs to go, you know. Yeah. And it's great that there's athletic gear, that can measure up on that level. It, you know, it's always that thing. It's like you want to buy the right thing. You want to you want to make that good choice. Yeah. You know, but when there isn't a an choice. option, mm. you know, you just go with what you know. Yeah, and the, I've I've worn some of the prototypes over the last sort of couple of years, and I've worn basically the finished products as well. And they're not quite going into production at the moment, but they're very mm-hmm. close. But it's literally it it works just like a normal polyester one, if not better, and no odor, and it's it's quality kit. Yeah, it's nice. So yeah, so they're they're on board. And I'll be wearing wearing their kit as soon as they are, and we're working on developing my own range as well. So so you can have the Lutzberski adventure <laughs> ranges. You know, I like that. We'll have we'll have to get you on board, right. Rich. And All right, man, I'm ready. Give yeah. me a kit when it's when it's when it's sorted out. That's for sure. So I like it. so all right. So you got to raise some cash. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a thing on your website for that. People can go to go to. Um, it's not. You have two websites. You have LukeTiberski.com, but you, the main site is the ultimatetriathlon.co, right? That's for the event, yeah. Uh-huh. And yeah. then you can. There's a video that kind of shows you what the challenge is and mm-hmm. what it's all about and all that kind of stuff. And people who are interested can throw a few shuckles your way there, right? Yeah, there's a donation page. But if people want to, uh, businesses and companies want to get on board as well, get in touch. And I've got uh, different uh, sponsorship levels, mm-hmm. and you know. You throw me extra cash, I'll give you extra promotion and a few extra other things as well. So That's the way it works. Yeah, that is. I've spent many, many hours, weeks, months developing all these uh, plans. I'm ready to use them. So sit down and chat with some companies and I've got different levels that uh, they can get on board with and uh, what I can provide for them as well. Cool. Well, I want to talk a little bit about nutrition. That's also you know, a big part of your story and also kind of is interwoven with, you know, your story of navigating through injuries. And, you know, in addition to all these injuries, you've had a lot of problems with kind of trying to figure out how to eat properly to not just satisfy your training, but actually, you know, keep you healthy because you've had issues with that, right? Yeah. And it sounds like you're a guy who has always been interested in nutrition and cooking and, you know, you were sort of the chef in your house as a young person. Is that right? I mean, how, I helped out. you know, what is this journey all about for you? Well, it, you know, it started with my, my mum would cook every night unless we had a barbecue outside and my dad would turn the meat on the barbecue. So we cooked all the time. Eating out was a treat, massive treat. And, you know, takeaway or anything like that would be very rare. So cooking was huge in our house. And uh, I always wanted to help mum out, chopping up vegetables and things like this as a kid. And I don't know, it's just I think the fact that mum spent a lot of time in the, in the kitchen uh, after work preparing meals and I was exposed to that. And for me, that was normal. So that sort of developed throughout the life. And I left home when I was 16 to go and play uh, soccer. Mm-hmm. And I, although I lived with a, with a family because uh, I was still at high school, which I met when I turned up at the front door. It's like, hey, I'm right. moving in. Uh, 
I ate with them most times, but I did cook for myself and I liked experimenting and finding new different flavours. But then at, you know, sort of 17 and a half, 18, I was living by myself and I cooked, had to cook every night. So, but I enjoyed that. So that sort of just evolved over time and I kept experimenting and, and I ate a very stereotypical uh, team sports diet, you know, like you have your your pastas and your rices and then a bit of meat portion and some veggies type of thing and um, you have your, your protein shakes after training session and this and that, whatever. And I was always lean meat. It was always brown rice and brown pasta and, you know, I was always the picky eater and if Luke comes around, oh, can you eat any of this? Is this up to your standards and this and that? But it was still this, that stereotypical sort of diet and that's what I ate throughout playing football and, and then the Marathon de Sarbs as well. I kept eating that and I ate gels and energy bars and this and that for whatever. And basically what happened was just before I went to uh, Nepal, my, my stomach had an explosion, just got bloated. I was really lethargic. I was tired. Um, it, was, it was out of nowhere. So I stopped, took stock and went, right, what's going on in my life? Well, for once in the relationship, my, my ex-girlfriend and I were in a really good place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it wasn't the emotional. <laughs> no, it wasn't the emotional this time. Yeah. And then, yeah, where was I going in life? Yeah, I had a direction. I was going to be an adventurer. I had this trip to Nepal coming up and uh, work was good. I had some really good clients and this and that. So all the, the outside of the normal boxes I ticked. And I was like, well, have I been eating different food? No, I've been living in the same place, drinking the same water, this and that. You know, all's good. And I was like, oh, fine, screw it. I'm going to Nepal for a month. What could happen? Can't get any worse. Go out there. So I went out there. That was fine. Came back. And, yeah, just really struggled. Kept kept bloating and this and that. So cut out to wheat, gluten, dairy, all that type of stuff. And made a difference. But then it was still around. So um, cut out all sugars, fruits and everything like that. So mm. cut right down on sugar. Um it was still a bit there, whatever. So I, I brought a few things back in, cut out meat and see how that went. It was still like some days would be great, other days I was like, well, that's not that's not really it. And um, so I played around and went right down to eating broth. Mm-hmm. Went cut right back down just to, to do that type of a – and then slowly add the stuff in. And then over the last, it's been... Right, like as a total reset and then add in one thing at a time so you can actually yeah. understand which things are doing what. Yeah, but then I'd add in something for like 10 days and that was fine. But then, you know, a month later, I would have this one thing that was fine and it would flare me up. And mm. I was like, what the hell's going on? So then I Almost went... sounds like an autoimmune thing. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, okay, I, I need some help. So I went to see all the um, the top mainstream sort of gut doctors and stuff in in London, and then I went to see some uh, holistic people, and I went to see like nutritionists and dietitians to just to get as many heads and thoughts, you know. Mm. And I'm open to everyone. If someone said, "Oh, we think it's definitely this," and someone said, "No, it's definitely not that," well, I'll meet you halfway and show me why. Um, but I got. <sighs> I got ideas, but nothing really helped. <clears throat> You're just going around the merry-go-round. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I went, um, I went vegan for a while just just to try, you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't eat a lot of meat these days, um, but you know, when I feel like a steak, you know, I got to have a steak. But right. that's well, I got this book for you right here, Luke. <laughs> 
It's called the plant power way. You know I already have that. You do? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know you already have it. Yeah. I give that to you, man. Oh, cheers, cheers. Yeah. I bought one for my friend as well for her birthday. She did. She, she loves it. <laughs> she, right. she, she raced in Mallorca last weekend and she took it over there to read in between training. Oh, that's cool. Um, but yeah, so, um, but yeah, to be honest, I, I, there's probably four or five days, probably three or four days a week where I would eat like as a vegan not mm-hmm. because I, I try to it's just that I love veggies <laughs> you know and and legumes are still a bit iffy on, on my stomach I can have them in small amounts um, but yeah so it's still a bit of a, a minefield I feel like there's less mines out there but I'm slowly getting through through that and but you got rid of the gels right the yeah so after stuff. yeah so after Nepal I came back and I saw these guys going out for runs eating chickpeas and eating like little bits of bananas and seeds and nuts and I was like well if they can go out and run for five six hours every day on that why can't I so then I went to this whole real food like that's that's my thing I eat only real food mm-hmm. and started experimenting with you know, like they did, I'd cook up some chickpeas and put in a little bit of cling film and take that out for runs and take some almonds. And, and then I got into like, well, hang on, this this whole baking thing with ground almonds and ground nuts and different types of uh, gluten-free flour like chestnut flour and sesame seed flour. And I threw myself in the kitchen and went mental and started baking like a madman, mm-hmm. all these energy bars and things like that, and they worked. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing for me is not that they give me sustainable energy and, and this and that, whatever. It's my recovery was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Like the biggest thing for me, the biggest thing was I did 35 hours of a double Ironman distance triathlon. 48 hours after I finished, I was running up and down stairs feeling great. Mm-hmm. So soft tissue-wise, I felt recovered. Obviously, on a cellular level, I was, you know, crippled, uh, and I knew this. So I was still rested, but I saw my physio, I saw my massage therapist, and to get a bit of treatment after the big race, and they went, "There's nothing wrong with you. You're fine. You know, you feel great." And that's because during the 35 hours, I ate nothing but real food that you could buy yourself and make it. Mm-hmm. You know, different recipes that I had. So. Yeah, so the so the takeaway, like your food philosophy is real food, basically. Yeah, nothing processed. Mm-hmm. If you don't know the name of it, don't eat it. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't know where it comes from. So my everyday food is loads of veggies. I don't eat loads of fruit these days. I'll probably have maybe five, five portions of fruit, five, six portions of fruit a mm-hmm. week, and that's okay for me. It doesn't give my stomach too much of a... Uh, rocking the boat, but loads of loads of veggies, loads of veggies, a few portions of meat, not not loads. And if it is uh, meat, it's it's like you know nice lean cuts with uh, you know from a, the local baker, a baker, local butcher that uh, you know has a has a, a farm down the road that I know exactly where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. So. And what do you take with you, like on the bike or the long runs? Um, well, I've trained over the last few years to try and make my body as fat adaptive as I can. So all my friends like, you don't eat. So if I go out for a four-hour, even hard cycle, I won't take anything. I've um, done that. Yeah, and I know what works and I know how hard I can push for a certain period of time. And I use myself as an experiment and, you know, I've gone out and tried to thrust myself on the bike for like seven or eight hours and see how I felt during the bike ride and you know I was like okay yeah mm-hmm. I felt okay anything after that I know I'll die but 
um, or my, my power will die off. So I take things like seeds and nuts and I make my own bars with ground uh, ground seeds and nuts. I use mm-hmm. uh, chestnut flour as well because it's a nice, if I am doing some higher intensity stuff, uh, chestnut flour's got a nice mix of um, carbohydrates and protein. Mm-hmm. But then uh, for recovery stuff, I'll use sesame seed flour, which is not a whole lot of carbohydrates, a little bit, just enough, right. but some protein in there as well. Um, and, you know, occasionally I'll take the banana or uh, I'll take, you know, make my own chia seed gels and things like this. Um, but, yeah, just I've experimented and made my own little bars and balls mm-hmm. and everything that everyone does these days. Mm-hmm. But I just don't use a whole lot of uh, fruit in them. I use them like um, occasionally I do. But, um, but yeah, that's what I feel with when I go Interesting. out. Yeah, I find that the more fat adapted you become, the easier it is to train without calories. Mm-hmm. But I think you got to be careful about that because you can get through that workout, but then it's what are you going to feel like the next day? You yeah. Know? So it's like you got to – even if you feel like you don't need to eat and you're doing your aerobic zone, whatever, I find that my training will be more consistently productive if I don't overdo it on the calorie deprivation with training. Oh, no, And totally. it's easy to get into it. Like you want to get lean, right? And yeah. so <clears throat> you yeah. got to like check yourself with that. No, I, t- I totally agree. And that's, you know, and that's what I tell people that if you want to go out and, and ride six hours hard with no fuel just to, you know, try and push yourself into a more fat adaptive state, then know the next couple of days you're doing recovery stuff and, right. you're, and you're eating well. Right. You but know. if you want to have a really productive training week where yeah. you're on point no. for every workout, then yeah, that's, that's not going to work. No, exactly. And, and I'll pick and choose my workouts where I'll, I'll go out with, with not eating and things like that. And I'll pick my weeks as well. So, okay, well, you know, I had a really massive week this week and, you know, I ate normal, ate before and during and after and stuff. And this week I'll, I'll do a couple of fasted sessions or I'll do some with minimal calories and stuff like that. And I just sort of I listen to my body, you know, it's – I'm pretty in tune with it these days. Uh-huh. I'm still learning, still mm-hmm. teaching me all the time, uh, and still throws curveballs at me. And I just think, you know, just roll with it, you know. But uh, um, yeah, but you you do got to pick and choose when you do that because it is detrimental to your recovery, and you can't just go out and go well every weekend. I'm going to go for a seven hour bike ride and not eat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not going to be helping you at all. Right. Right. Yeah. So where are you taking all this, right? You're, you're, you've embarked on this adventuresome life, life of, a, of an adventurer. You're getting ready for this big uh, event in October. But, you know, wh- where is it all heading? Like, what does it mean? And, and what are you trying to kind of say through these endeavors? Well, as I said, what did I take out of Nepal is to live life. And that's, that's what I want to do because we're here for a short time. So I want to live it every day. And I want to inspire others to live their life but you know there's inspiring someone by showing a cool um like photo or something on instagram and everyone's like oh that's really cool i'm inspired now but they don't do anything about it (laughs) right i want to inspire people to act and do something uh so that there is a difference and i get that i get that you know i put stuff on my social media things to that you know someone posted and i'm like that's cool i'll repost that and i know 99.9% 99.9% of the people just go, oh, that's really cool, and then turn around and forget about it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I want to inspire people to act on uh, on that inspiration, to do something, get out of their own comfort zone. And, you know, and that comes with all my brand of everything that I do. You know, I started teaching people how to cook. I call it confidence in the kitchen. 
where I feel everyone can cook, but you, a lot of people don't have that confidence. So I would install that by teaching people a few ways to cook, like you know, sautéing or roasting or, or grilling, which sounds very basic to people who cook all the time, but for those that have no confidence, they're like, well, I can put toast in the toaster and bake beans in the microwave, and that's me cooking. And then, you know, fresh, real food with a few herbs and spices, and you, you can have an amazing meal. You know, so I do. I, I, that's what I do as well, and it's trying to install that um, renewed confidence through inspiration to act on it, to be able to live their life every day. Where so many people now are sort of, you know, head down, work, 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 and then all of a sudden, ten years goes by, and you know what that's like, and you mm-hmm. think, where that ha- what happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, bridging that uh, that gap from inspiration. To action, you know, that's the $64,000 question, right? At least. Because inspiration's kind of easy. It's kind of easy to throw a platitude out, you know, and have somebody say, that's inspiring. Yeah. But but what is it? What is the value of that, really? No, that really, there's none unless someone says, that's going to make me go and sign up to that art class that Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to do and I've always put it off, or that's going to make me go and dust off the trainers and go for a run or that has to come that's internally driven though that oh, has totally. to come you know within inside that person and that person has to be at the you know at the right time in their life where they're ready to make that kind of change yeah no i totally agree yeah. and you know both you and i have, have been in, in different situations where there's been opportunities but it's not been the right time and then all of a sudden for whatever reason that right time's been put in front of us and you could say we've both taken it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so that's that's part of where I'm trying to go with this. And where's the end goal? I don't know, man. I'm enjoying the ride. Uh, there, is no, there is no end. What's the point of trying to say that's where I want to go? Because you might end up going in a different direction, but you're still loving it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I, I tick along. I, I do some, some talks now. do some motivational speaking and stuff. And I really want to do something with my, my way of cooking and my food stuff. I've... I've got a million recipes, you know, sitting in a folder and I do need to do something about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, you've, as you know, you can juggle so many balls, but, you know, occasionally you've got to put one or two down to don't overload. So that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, you can do a lot of things, you know, with a, a relative level of mediocrity or, yeah. or some level of aptitude. But if you want to really excel at something, then you have to focus. And right now... You know, you gotta you gotta get from Morocco to Monaco. <laughs> you know, in twelve days, the, the cookbook or whatever else you're working on will still be there. Yeah, but, uh, you know, everything in its own due time. Yeah, well, that's right. So I'm just putting things in place, and you know, I've got a few recipes and stuff that I throw up on my website so people can see my style. And you know, I always put up photos of stuff if I bake something new, and there's always people saying, "Oh, that's really cool." You know, can I get the recipe and a lot of the times I'm like, yeah, sure, here. But sometimes I'm like, no, this is a keeper. Sorry, I can't. <laughs> you know what it's like. You can... In the internet age, you can't sit on those recipes. Everybody wants them for free yeah. and immediately. Yeah, so I do give out some, but then I always, every every few weeks, I refresh and I give out some recipes. And if you sign up uh, to my website and stuff, you get a free cookbook and there's always recipes coming oh, along cool. on there. So I do, I do share a lot because, yeah, like... I don't want to stuff that I've created. I don't want to just keep to myself because I'm excited. You know, I I like to help people and I like to help people perform better in everyday life. So whether it's learning to cook better or, or making new things from recipes that I've come about, 
to, you know, like the other week I crewed for a good friend of mine who did the double Ironman with me who did a run leg. Mm -hmm. She did a first 100-mile race and she asked me, I trained her for it as well. So it was, I had a lot invested in it. She said, can you pace me for the second 50 miles? And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. And for those who maybe aren't up to date with sort of 100 miles, basically if you pace for the second 50 for, uh, you know, sort of a a half-decent runner, you're basically running through the night. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And that's what I did. I, I ran for two hours of daylight on the Saturday night and we ran all through the night together and uh, a couple of hours in the morning of, of, of daylight and that was it. But her finishing that race, she actually did really well, uh, 22 and a half hours for her first 100 miler. Oh, that's good. Uh, I was over the moon. I felt more happy and more pleased and more ecstatic for her finishing that race than I did with my double Ironman because for me that was just like, well, I said I was going to do it and I did it, so what? that's it, that's done. But with Hannah finishing her 100 miler, I was I was over the moon. My emotions was, were bubbling out out of control. And, uh, a couple of uh, Paul, who was uh, there crewing as well, we were so excited, and her family was there, and it was a great time. So I I like to help and and sort of teach and coach people to mm-hmm. help perform their best. And and you know she she said to me after I, I couldn't have done it without you, and I said you would have done it, but I was just there to sort of. You know, bounce ideas off to make sure you got there. So I felt a big part of that, but at the same time, you know, she's a tough chick and she got through it. Well, that's a long road from sitting on the couch, isolating and uh, being depressed and, and lying about what you're doing <laughs> throughout your day, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, that kind of community and service is the ultimate uh, salve to depression. It is, it is. And, you know, as I said, I still have my dark days now, but they're few and far between and and I know that, you know, when I do have those dark days, I, I look at these um, uh, times when I've I've been a part of something and made someone's life better or, or helped them with something or, you know, dragged her through the night when she was trying to fall asleep and didn't want to run anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's what gets me through the dark days these times, knowing that I can make a difference in someone else's life if I, if I apply myself to that. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Sounds good, man. Yeah, beautiful, man. Cheers. We did it. We did. We rocked it. You feel all right? I feel amazing. You don't feel depressed? No, no way. Not at all. <laughs> all right, Espe- especially after going to the, the one and only cafe down the road here before I came. Oh, you were at Joy Cafe. I went to Joy Cafe. How was it? Uh, I went in. The staff was amazing, by the way. Was I will- Joy there? I have no idea who Joy was. Uh, you would know. Okay. She's bubbling over. No, Everyone was really nice and friendly, but and no. Nick, who's her partner, he's an Ironman triathlete. Okay. So I went up and I thought, well, I just did this run and I had a bit of a snack afterwards and that was fine. I thought, I've got to go and check out Joy Cafe, you know, what it's all about. I thought, I'll just get like a smoothie or something. And I was looking at the board, I wasn't sure what it was. And, and the girl behind the counter, she's like, what, what would you like? And I said, oh, I'm not sure. I've just did a run. And she's like, I like the rich roll. <laughs> you should get a rich roll. Yeah. And I went, you know what? You have to. You're coming over for the podcast. I didn't. I didn't say that, but in yeah. my head, I was like, "I have to." I said, "Yes, I'll have a rich roll, please." <laughs> <laughs> was it all right? Yeah, it was good, man. But I got it without dates. Yeah, because dates don't. I love dates, but they don't sit well with me. Mm. So the rich roll without dates is a smash hit for me. But I'm sure the rich roll with dates is awesome. Yeah, good. But did you eat? Did you eat lunch also, or just get the smoothie? No, just get the smoothie because yeah. I took. Um, I took a massive big salad to have after my run. Um, I put it in a little cooler box with some water. You know? Right on, man. Well, yeah, thanks for dropping by over there. 
Cheers, man. It was, it was really nice. You, something like that in London would go mental. I'd love yeah. it. Yeah. How is the uh, healthy eating landscape in London? Getting better. Getting better. It's slowly. It's a small little community in, in the vast mm-hmm. of, of, of the city, but it's getting there. That's there's, cool. there's um a lot more uh, better places to eat. You know, Whole Foods came over as well, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a lot more uh, local farmers markets popping up now which are really cool you know so get down and get your fresh veggies that were grown you know just down the road stuff like that so people are starting to get it but it's the same thing as we said earlier we've been fooled with you know we've been told this is healthy you know this is healthy all these sandwich shops and all these cafes so this is this is a health food store you go in and it's like this is not healthy this is processed crap mm-hmm. you know and it's, it's, it's difficult to see because, you know, my, my take on food and stuff like that. But there, it, is, it is getting better. The whole fish and chips is not as big as it used to yeah. be. But, uh, but yeah, no, there's a, there's a couple of cool vegan and vegetarian uh, places popping up out there now. And, um, but, yeah, no, it's, it's getting there. That's good, man. That's exciting. Well, I'm excited for you and the big, uh, the big adventure coming up. Cheers. You'll have to uh, come back and share about the experience when you're on the other side i'd love to i'd love to and, and get you some Kasaga stuff as well oh yeah that's cool because you you are the, the plant power man so you need to <laughs> yeah. you need to have the pioneered 100 percent plant-based shirts i like it cool all right so if uh if you're digging on luke you're inspired you want to help him out give him a high five and put some wind in his sails the best place to do that is to go to the ultimate triathlon.co consider a donation be mighty uh <clears throat> welcome i would imagine totally but also if opinion. you're if you're a business or a corporation drop me an email and uh we can chat about things of what i can do for you as well yeah cool. there's plenty and you're luke tyberski on uh on <clears throat> twitter right t-y-b-u-r-s-k-i You've got it. And Facebook. You're, you're on Facebook, Instagram. Yeah. It's all the same, right? You're, yeah. You're an easy guy to find. There's only one of me, apparently. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there might be one in Poland. I don't know if his name's Luke, though. Uh, it's probably Luca or something, but uh, yeah. spelled the way I spell it. No, there's, I think there's one or two uh, somewhere in the States here, but no, they're, they're not up there with me. Cool, man. Uh, well, thanks for doing this. Cheers, Rich. I appreciate uh, you having me on, and you know all the listeners. I, you know, I listened to your first podcast. Mm. I remember that, and as it evolved, which you have evolved yeah, quite it's come a, lot. a long way. Yeah, it has, and you know, I've I've been inspired throughout the whole your whole journey, and uh, and when we sort of chatted uh, about coming on and doing this, I was excited because. You know, I've sat at home, I've sat on my bike and I've listened to all the podcasts and the amazing guests that you have on and but the, the listeners are is what makes it. So mm-hmm. uh, it's cool. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, man. This Always. is great. Awesome. All right, man, keep the rubber side down. Always. All right, peace. Plants. All right, you guys, how'd you like that? I think we did it. I think it was pretty good. Let me know what you thought of the episode in the comments section on the episode page at richroll.com. Uh, keep sending your questions for future Q&A podcasts to info at richroll.com. And for all your plant power needs, also visit richroll.com. We got nutrition products. We have signed copies of Finding Ultra and The Plant Power Way. I will inscribe those books with whatever you would like me to say in them within reason. Uh, we have 100% organic cotton garments. We have Julie's meditation program. We have plant power tech tees. We have 
Plant Power and Peace and Plants sticker packs and temporary tattoos. Who doesn't love that stuff? And our most recent offering in the store, and I'm really excited about this, are limited edition art prints from uh, my friend and esteemed artist and food advocate, Andrew Pasquella. They are a pop art take on the USDA's politicization and devaluation of the true organic movement. They're really gorgeous pieces. They're signed and numbered on heavy cloth paper. Um, And I think this is a really great and inexpensive way to get your hands on some really fine art that I pretty much assure you is going to appreciate and value as Andrew's art career continues to skyrocket. So basically everything you need to take your health, your life to the next level. We got your bases covered at richroll.com. If you want more, if you're into online courses, go to mindbodygreen.com. I got two there, The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition, which is a great kind of counterpiece to The Plant Power Way, our cookbook. And I also have The Art of Living with Purpose, which is all about goal setting and doing the internal work and kind of getting your life on a proper trajectory. Really proud of those courses. They're very affordable uh, in a world of online courses that cost like thousands of dollars. This one's super cheap. Uh, both are super cheap, and uh, and and I'm you know I stand by them. I think they have a lot of great content in them, so you can check those out. Uh, thanks for supporting the show. Thanks you for telling a friend as always. Thank you for sharing it on social media. Yes, I love that, especially Instagram. I'm loving all those pictures, and thank you for using the Amazon banner ad at Ritual.com for all your Amazon purchases. All right, you guys, I will see you in a few days. Make it great, everybody. Peace. Plants. Yay!